still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends! And you are our friends and happy birthday, America! And sorry to our British listeners today but we are here with another episode of Jim Cornette's drive through right here. Actually, it's not going to be Independence Day as you hear it, but it is as we are recording it. And we have Is special... that blooper going to be left in? I think that's going to be for the holiday reel, but <laughs> no one's going to have any idea what we're talking about. But we're going to have a special holiday surprise here today. It's usually my show, but I've given it to the star of what? the show today. I'm the great Brian Last. I'll just be over here in the corner. Here it is, the host and star of Holiday drive through Mr. Jim Cornette. Fuck you, take it back. I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it. You can have it. It's not good for me or whatever the fuck that is. <sighs> You're trying to give me this fiasco right off the bat. After you and and you are so vain, Brian Ladd. You are you're so vain. You probably think this podcast is about you and you're going to take that fumfer out at the beginning where it sounded like you were having strokes audibly and i start laughing so it'll be like i'm laughing at just you doing something normal which was not the case and you again will look good i actually think that's a wonderful tease for the blooper reel at the end of this year which is going to be two years worth of bloopers well we never bloop well i don't oh, yes you do you bloop all oh, the time. not only do you bloop but then i have to bloop you again in post-production to make sure that people don't hear exactly what the bloop was well, that's because you tell me all the time my bloops aren't actually bloops. They're just not eligible to be broadcast to polite society. Right. There are bloops and then there are blue bloops. And you have a lot of those blue bloops. A lot of blue bloops? Yeah, that's right. Try well, saying we'll that try, five times. We'll try not to blue bloop this show too badly, but it's still your program. All right. You're not pawning it off on me. You're going to be responsible for this today, and I'll be responsible I wasn't, for whatever we do later on in the week. I wasn't pawning it. I was abandoning it. Well, yeah, it, this, what, what do I look like? One of those drop boxes at the fire department where you can deposit an unwanted baby? You know, speaking of drop boxes. Do they was, have those up there? I, they don't have those that I know of, but I always think of you when I think well, of no, a drop box. Why are box. you glossing over this? Because like, I oh, want to talk, talk about this. That's I'm, a very, th it's a good thing. You, the, you, you know what? The people up there in the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area are too hard-hearted. They probably still just put babies in baskets and set them on people's doorsteps just willy-nilly up there. But we down, down south here, we're... We're compassionate and caring people. There's a drop box at a lot of the fire departments. You pull it open and deposit your unwanted baby, and an alarm goes off, 
and somebody comes and gets the baby and that and your hands are clean if you do it the legal way. You thought this was funny when you thought of this whole bit here? No, I didn't think of this bit. I've just I've asked you what you thought I was and it brought it to my mind. There's now, an alarm that goes especially. off if you put a baby in a box? You haven't heard of this. I have never heard of it. First of all, let me this start. Is let me answer serious- your question. We don't do this in the Northeast. No, 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 we don't. Explain this process, please, sir. I'm explaining to you the process and it actually is a service to the public because since there's no safe medical scientific way to avoid unwanted pregnancies in the year 2022 people have babies that they don't want and instead of leaving them somewhere to just willy-nilly as i said to be left to the environment and the potential wildlife and whatever the fuck they have certain states this is legitimate have these drop boxes at where you can go and it's it's a place where you can put the baby in and just and leave and and it's legal you have turned the baby over to someone and the boxes are monitored so anytime they're in use immediately somebody knows and goes and gets the baby and that way the baby doesn't end up in a dumpster someplace somebody's looking after it which is the way that things are going in this country we're going to have to have a lot more of those probably put one in like they used to have the red box at Walmart Because there's going to be a lot more unwanted babies coming up. But as far as this unwanted program, I'm not accepting. I was trying to make it lighthearted. Look at where, look at the tone that you took it in. (laughs) I was trying to have fun. What I was going to say before, before you decided to go on this rant, is I always think of you when I think of drop boxes, because of that line to Michael Hayes in the promo in '89. And you look like an explosion in a Salvation Army drop box. No, I don't think that was it. It was. I don't know if you used the word wardrobe, but your wardrobe looks like a Salvation Army Dropbox rejects, I think it was. Ah, well, whatever the case. Well, and then I should have seen, I should have had a time machine to see what he would have gone into after that. He he looks like Red Fox's drunk uncle at a fucking bachelor party. (laughs) Notwithstanding your issues at the time with the Freebirds outside of Terry Gordy. I always thought that was an interesting segment because it gave you a lot but it didn't give you too much. Actually, it didn't give you that much at all, but it made you want more and more never came. But you and Michael Hayes jousting on the mic was something people always wanted. And by the way, that sounded like you were trying to write song lyrics there. You wanted more, but more never came. If you notice, you've been singing more on the show. You now rap on the show. I feel like this show's getting more musical by the moment. Well, wrestling's not helping us out any, so we got to branch out into other forms of entertainment. Man, let me get away from anything related to actual music. Let me talk about Michael Hayes here. Yes. So you and Michael Hayes jousting was something that people always wanted, and we only got it that one time briefly. Do you wish you would have done more, or do you think it was good just because it was that one time? It, No, it, it would have been great if we could have done some kind of proper program with the original Freebirds. I would have loved it. Because we only had, I think, the only one-on-one, two-on-two match the Midnight Express had with two members of the original Freebirds was at the uh, Charlotte Bash at the Memorial Stadium in 87, which was, we worked with, we worked with Michael and and Buddy, right? Yeah, Um, I think so. And then there were, there was a four-team elimination match uh, on Easter Sunday, 1985 in Houston, Texas, Sam Houston Coliseum. It was the Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express, the Dirty White Boys, 
and the Freebirds. It was Gordy and Roberts in the ring and Michael on the, on the floor as as most of the time anybody who was booking or working with them picked it that way. And, you know, they got eliminated by, it was a four-team elimination match, each team for himself, not uh, not an eight-man tag. And the Freebirds got eliminated, I think, by disqualification when Gordy went crazy. But we never, and then, you know, we had a bunch of matches, tags and six-mans, with Michael and Jimmy and Gordy, Jimmy Garvin, but... Then that was somewhat of a program, and we did, you know, some uh, promos and angles, but that's when we were baby faces that summer of 89, WCW, uh, uh, Turner had taken over, houses were the shits, but we, we never got to really do interviews or programs with the original set of Freebirds, and that would have been fun. I guess, yeah, me and Michael, well, hell, we we drew some money for King Kong and Godzilla, remember, on Super Scary Saturday? That grandpa clip is out there on yeah, that clip's out there on YouTube. We go come into the studios at Techwood Drive one day to do the Saturday night TBS show. And they came up and they said, Hey, Grandpa Al Lewis, the actual Grandpa Munster, was hosting their super scary Saturday horror movie feature at the time. And some producer came in and said, Hey, we want you and Michael Hayes to do promos because today's movie is King Kong versus Godzilla. And so we did the promos like he was, fuck, who'd I have now? They told us, because I th- I would have wanted King Kong. I think I might have got, did I get Godzilla? I can't remember now, but we did promos like we were their manager. And that was, uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to sell any tickets for that match. Now today, they'd actually had it. They'd had two fucking goofballs dress up in King Kong and Godzilla outfits, and we'd had to stand out there at ringside and actually cheer them on to victory. But we just did three minutes and fucking then they showed the movie. When you watch some of the classic Godzilla films, how would you rank his work rate? You know, actually, uh, the whole Japanese monster movie genre was highly influenced by pro wrestling. And a lot of people don't realize this. But even, remember Ultraman? Were you, are you old enough, Brian Last, to have watched Ultraman when you were a kid? Not when I was a kid, but when I was like a teenager and in my 20s, I went back and watched a lot of these things because I was always interested in them. And every now and then you'd see them and they looked awesome. And then even, and it still happens today, but around that time too, a lot of these things, I guess because of just the way pop culture is marketed, you started seeing the action figures and like Tower Records and stuff, not in kids stores, but in a place for adults. So uh, I was very aware of it. Well, I actually got to watch Ultraman uh, probably about a year before. I actually found wrestling and I thought oh, it's cool Ultraman besides the the ray beam that he shot out of his wrist and blah 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 he's hitting the the Japanese movie monsters with wrestling moves including the baba chop but I didn't realize it then and then later on when I saw wrestling and then started getting more of it it made sense but if you go back in some of the 60s and 70s especially Japanese monster movies the fuck they're using wrestling moves Kevin Von Erich has claimed, and it's not completely ridiculous, I'd have to figure out the time frame, but he claimed at one point in an interview I read, I believe, that Godzilla used a claw in a film because of how over Fritz was a job. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds so preposterous. It's, well, However. It's, yeah, it's not <laughs> completely ridiculous. Yeah. 
because of the wrestling was on network TV in Japan. And I've just said, yeah, go back and watch some, especially the, the late sixties, early seventies stuff. They're using wrestling moves. So they were watching. It's, it's not that far. I don't remember whether Godzilla was the one cause he had the T-Rex arms, right? Yeah. Could it have been another monster that used the claw? Cause there was, Oh, oh that's there right. was Mothra. There was Ghidorah. There was, Megalomaniac. I can't remember all the names of those monsters. Mecha Godzilla. Mecha Godzilla. And his manager, Megalomaniac. <laughs> Do you remember Godzilla's son? Son of Godzilla? Godzuki. Wasn't that it? <laughs> what? I think it was Godzuki. Gadzooks. I can't believe they would do something like that. Maybe it was Max Dupree. Oh my, well, okay, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to even do the edit marker here because I'm, it's going to be a full stop, a record break, everything of what we're talking about. We didn't watch any wrestling this week. It, Jim and I both forgot there was a pay-per-view. <laughs> and there was a pay-per-view, and it was money in the bank, and it really meant a lot, so much that we forgot a couple days before that there was a pay-per-view and just never watched it. There was also SmackDown and Rampage. I don't think we watched Yeah, well, it. I've been busy. I'll talk about that at some point in this show. I've been busy the last two days, but yeah. But then, but by popular demand, we had to go back and look for something. There was something that a lot of listeners started getting in touch with me on Twitter and via email about Friday night into Saturday into Sunday. That Max Dupree, the former L.A. Knight, who was the former, was it Eli Drake? Eli Drake. Eli Drake. He is now. Did you just say Elay Drake? I don't know why I said. I guess uh, I don't know why I thought that was his name for a second there. But Elay Drake <laughs> now in WWE as Max Dupree, the leader of the Maximum Male Models. MMM. It's gone nowhere. By the way, is this the most amount of maxes we've had in wrestling at the same time? And I think it's the maximum amount. The maximum maxes. Max Caster, Max Dupree, of course, MJF is. Maxwell Jacob Friedman, I guess it is. And then there was Max Dupree and his models, and I heard about this, so I started watching it. And I didn't even know what to say, and I realized you have to listen to the live commentary or whatever you want to call it from Dupree to really gauge it, so then I begged you to please watch it to justify the fact that I watched it. And his guys who are, they were, it was Mansoor and... And Mace, and now it's Mansoua and Masi. What? How the Masse? Masse and Mansoua. <laughs> Masse and Mansoua with Max Dupree. But where do I start? I was so embarrassed for. I I met this guy when I did the the NWA commentary, and also in he was in uh, TNA when it was Global Force, and. Him talking as Eli Drake or or uh, now I'm trying to remember all of his fucking Eli names. Drake. He, no, it's not Eli. Oh, L.A. Knight. Now you're gonna throw me off even further. It's the Fourth of July. Fuck you. <laughs> when he was Eli Drake, and later when he was L.A. Knight. Yeah. He could talk. He was glib. He couldn't just do a, a promo with he what he wanted. He could talk off the top of his head. And we talked about that, especially in, in NXT there. He was experienced. He could work. They put him in with these other green guys to have good matches. He was a classic pro wrestling style pro wrestler. And he's a grown adult man with a fairly good physique, especially in the field of 
this day and age, right? With guys looking like grown adult men. He looked more like a classic wrestler than anyone else that was in NXT. Yes. And I'm not saying that I would have, or anybody else was going to book him against Brock Lesnar in the main event at next year's WrestleMania or whatever. I don't, I'm not going that far, but in considering the available talent and the playing field, especially with his experience and he's a, he's in his thirties, he's, mature and he can talk and he has personality and he would go out and try to get shit over. And, but what I was about to say was I've met him and as that person, Eli Drake or LA Knight, he was talking fairly not like a guy with turning up his personality, like all the classic gimmicks. They said, everybody, it's just him with his Personality turned up to whatever. Well, he was turning it up, but that was kind of him. And so, and then also correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but not only was he on NXT on USA Network as LA Knight and working as himself as a threat to the champion and as this fucking, you know, hey, dummy and, you know, braggadocious fellow, but he actually, when he showed up, on SmackDown and first said that he was Max Dupree with the male model business, except for wearing glasses, he was still kind of talking like himself, right? And yeah. I've never seen this before. What, Whatever we saw on Friday night on SmackDown, I, it's the first time I've ever seen it. Because all of a sudden, this guy, this braggadocious, ass-kicking you know, babyface in one place, but he was a heel in NXT. But the point is, he suddenly has become Bronson Pinchot in Beverly Hills Cop. Surge? Surge! It's good old Surge! Achmal? Achmal Foley? Achmal? I just don't, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. And uh, their their catchphrase is, I don't know, they're titillating the juice. My juices didn't need titillated by this. They put poor L.A. Eli. <laughs> they titillated McAfee, it seems. Uh, McAfee pulled out his large, throbbing penis and spit spewed piss all over this entire segment and <laughs> and that's the only thing that made it bearable and you could tell the other announcer i, I can't remember what his fucking name michael is. cole what was that michael all right i didn't know it was i thought it was one of the other people that sounded like michael cole if he had voice activation security on his phone Every other announcer in wwe could open his shit up but <laughs> michael cole is trying not to pull his pants down and take a tremendous projectile diarrhea on this thing. But McAfee is just piss. I mean, I've never seen any stream of piss last this long in my life. He pissed all over it. But the thing is, I was embarrassed and I felt bad for Eli L.A. Because he's talented. This This is worse than the Red Rooster. Can you ever... Can anybody, They first of all, the fans, just this presentation, within seconds, were whatting him out of the building. And the problem was, he is so uncomfortable at doing this. And you could tell that they'd written this material for him, where he's calling these models, Monsoor and Massey, out dressed in whatever the 
fuck they're wearing with the fanny pack around their neck and everything. And he's got to talk like they're on the runway. And he's got to talk with the, I mean, it's not homophobic because it's not like he's being afraid of, is it homophobic? If you're not acting like you're afraid of homosexuals, you're just acting like one in a stereotypical way when you're not one. I didn't even think he was necessarily acting like he was gay or anything. It was. It I was think. I weird... think the writers. I think the writers and or Vince McMahon think that that's what he's doing, and that's as gay as he can get away with on network television without some group complaining. They think. I think that's what they're going for. You can't tell me it's not. So you're saying you don't think Vince McMahon would ever do anything with a gay character on TV who wasn't just mocking them or making fun of them? So what I was saying was, so he's out there and they're making him talk like this and act like this and he's dressed like this and he's obviously uncomfortable because he can't, he, this guy can talk his ass off, but he's not only not able to memorize this shit because it really, it's nothing that he's ever said before. I'm pretty sure he's never done commentary on a goddamn fashion show before. He's having to read <laughs> off the cards that he's holding. It looks like he's reading the next model and doing that, but he's reading the fucking promo off the cards because these words mean as much to him as they did to me because I've never done commentary on a fucking fashion show. And he's messing up his tenses and his syntaxes and everything because he's just, you could tell if you'd have shoved a lump of coal up his ass before he went out there, you'd have come back with a 10-carat diamond. I, I'm just, he, he's trying to do, because I guess he figures, well, now I'm signed to these fucking assholes and this is going to kill my career, but maybe I can make however much money for the next two years. If they, if I do what they tell me to do, I don't know why you would be doing this. Yeah. Sadly, I think that's maybe the way you treat it. And I think that's the difference, the big difference between this and the red rooster. Terry Taylor was still on the rise when he went there. He was still relatively young when he went there. And he got saddled with a gimmick that no one could ever forget, that people would still do the rooster crow when he came out years later. L.A. Knight's in his thir late 30s, I believe. Right? Wasn't he like the oldest guy in NXT or one of them when we last looked? He 37, was, he 38? Was, yeah, which, uh, remember I was saying, why they put him in NXT? He needs to be in, on the main roster so he can work with some of these younger guys. See, that's the difference. Terry Taylor derailed an entire career. This guy may be at the end of his career, and this may be his one chance to make some money on national TV. And I hate to look at it that way and justify it that way, but what else is it? Either that or they've got a member of his family in a closet somewhere. Because elsewhere, would, I mean, I'm trying to think of... Any positive reason you would do act like this, do this, go along with this, cooperate with this on national television, otherwise then they say you're fired if you don't, or we, we got Aunt Sue. She ain't going to be making you any more quilts where she's going, pal, unless you cooperate. And the other thing is, what do you think the audience wants to see? Because the idea... <laughs> Not that! that. <laughs> they sh I, I was expecting to see fucking actual turds flying into the ring, hitting him in the face. From the pe the people were like, no, we're not, we're not booing this. We're fucking hooting it out of the building. I don't know what the audience is for that. Why would they think any in, anybody in their building would want to see that? It's got to it's it's got to be Vince had to see a fashion show on TV accidentally. It's another one of these. Don't let Vince look at shit.
type of deals. And suddenly he got this idea and looked around and like, he can do it. That's got to be what it is. This guy doesn't have an advocate, too. That's the other thing. Who's going to be the person that goes to Vince and goes, Vince, this is terrible. This guy's actually talented. We may be able to get something out of him for a couple of years. Nobody. No, nobody. Yeah. Nobody. <sighs> Mazur and Monsay or Massey. Massey or- and Mansois. Mansois. <laughs> Are they going to be a tag team? <laughs> <laughs> I want to. <laughs> Shit, they got to bring Justin Roberts back and give him a job again just to hear him announce those two. You know who looks just like Justin Roberts? And I just Hopefully this, nobody. But I, what, no, ahead. I just saw this commercial the other day. Remember a long time ago I said he reminds me of a flight attendant? I realized why. That Pepto-Bismol commercial. <laughs> where they're like, do you have, what is it? Heartburn, acid, indigestion, upset, and then the one flight diarrhea? attendant. Diarrhea? That's Justin Roberts. Well, I've said many times he's going to rupture himself in some fashion, given those introductions. But hopefully uh, poor Max Dupree won't be ruptured uh, by Mansois and Maurice. You know, it's kind of cool to see this in a way, because you get to point something out to the kids and say, look, this is what used to happen to OVW guys. (laughs) This is the OVW (laughs) treatment. This is what happened in the old days. I'm glad you get to see this nowadays. Uh, Rico Cosentino, Rico, Rico, a former American gladiator c- contestant that actually kicked the ass of the American gladiators. He'd been both a paramedic, paramedic, a paramedic and a Las Vegas police officer. He was shot three times, stabbed twice and hit by a car in the line of duty. He was a bodybuilder and a gymnast. He was able to talk his ass off. He had, was a great looking guy. and. They turned him into a gay hairdresser and ran him out of the business. Yeah, that, <sighs> that Billy and Chuck angle did wonders for everybody involved. It well, it did, and you know what? Here's the thing. Again, is that not the? I, again, I don't want to say homophobic because phobic is fear of. Is that not detrimental to or insulting to gay people when you have either? People who aren't gay acting like they are gay, isn't that kind of some equivalent of blackface? And or when you have gay people, whether they want to do it or not, presenting themselves on TV in outrageous stereotypes of what people think gay people act like. Right. Well, but it is wrestling to an extent. I mean, Pete Buttigieg would probably not be a wrestling star. He'd probably be mid-card at best. Not flamboyant enough, not charismatic enough. Well, I didn't say Pete Buttigieg was going to fucking be a goddamn, you know, student of Hoist Gracie or anything like that. But I'm just saying there was, what the fuck was the guy's name? Um, Who? The guy that I can't remember his a fucking name or else, yes. <laughs> no, a fucking plumber I, I used one time. No. There was a wrestler on an NWA event I called three, four, five years ago, whatever, uh, Mike Perro. And in the announcer notes was the fact that he was the, I can't remember how they phrased it. Was he the first openly gay wrestler in the NWA or he had come out or done something or whatever? Okay, fine. That's in his notes. That's in his, his bio. 
he comes out, he's like six foot four, he's 250 pounds, he's fucking kicking ass. It was in his bio, and as announcers, we notated that, but but there was no, like, and then he's going to, you know, stick his finger up the guy's ass and check his oil or whatever the fuck. So, you know, that's fine to me it, it, because that's kind of what would happen in any other sport, right? But I think Vince is still... And, you know, even Adrian Street. Adrian Street had a woman with him. So you were never sure. He never once said that he was gay. And he never once uh, uh, fucking did an angle based on being attracted to in a relationship with or whatever another, another guy. But he was exotic. So you didn't know. He used his behavior as a weapon. Yes. Behavior as a weapon. That's very good. Is that a new t-shirt? I might steal that. No, but think about it. Who did he... Was it Terry Taylor? He kissed in a match to distract him, and Terry Taylor was wiping his face, and then he rolled him up and pinned him? Yes. Well, that, that And then he the... hopped away with Linda. <laughs> yeah. Skipped. He didn't hop. He skipped. skipped. Excuse me. Yes. But the, and sometimes he would pay more attention to me when I was his manager than Linda, but, you know, hey, because I was so charming. But the, the Dundee was the booker in Louisiana, stole that finish from one they did in Memphis. That was, remember, that was Adrian's first appearance on Memphis television. Uh, after he he worked in Los Angeles, the L.A. territory, during the dying days of that, and came straight from there out to Tennessee when Dundee was booking, and his first match on TV, on live Memphis TV that Saturday morning, was he jumped up in, there was a job guy named Ira Reese, and he jumped up in Ira Reese's arms, and Ira catches him out of surprise, and he plants a big kiss on Ira Reese. When Ira Reese drops him, we're like, oh, shit, then he rolled him up. Now, that necessarily, because he'd just done it in Los Angeles, and he'd done that kind of thing in England. But what complicated matters in Memphis was inadvertently, just because nobody actually in the locker room particularly thought of it. They just, they were thinking the heat was on well, they're going to think this guy's gay and he's kissed this guy in a blah, 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 the exotic Adrian Street. So what slipped by until several of the viewers caught up with it and called the switchboard was that Adrian Street had just perpetrated the first gay interracial kiss in the history of Southern television. A white man had never kissed a black man on live Memphis TV on Saturday morning opposite to cartoons in 1982. And the and viewers called the switchboard to notate that, and they suggested that he might not do the kiss finish anymore on TV, but it was done. And who was it? Was it Jim Morrison said, hey, man, we did the fucking Ed Sullivan show. There's something for the newspapers. The first... Same-sex interracial kiss on Memphis TV. Adrian I, th- I think on TV anywhere south of Indiana, at least. And and funny thing enough, I was not his manager that week because he came out and he did that match and then he did his promo. And Adrian wasn't used to doing a lot of promos in America either because, you know, or well, he had just come from Los Angeles. And before that, England, he hadn't been, they didn't do TV promos a lot over there. So... The next week, Dundee said, you're managing Adrian Street. Oh, okay. And that way, you know, 
Adrian had somebody talk for him and he could do his thing and we kept him away from kissing black men on television. Where was all this going? It's your show. Have we started this program we yet? We started it. I think we finished a Max Dupree segment. I think we did. Um, on the topic of the other wrestling we did not watch, there was a Money in the Bank pay-per-view event. Did you? I have not really followed any of this. Well, I'll bring you up to date on it real quick here, and then we can get on to more fun stuff. Because we did forget about it, but when I saw it on the Twitter machine, I said, well, what happened? So here's what happened. If you missed the Money in the Bank pay-per-view like we did. And remember, the original plan for this fucking fiasco was they were going to put this in a stadium, right? In Las Vegas. And then they moved from a stadium to, what is the arena called out? The indoor arena. I think they should have moved down. The Golden Nugget. The, well, they, they maybe should have moved it to Laughlin, Nevada and done it in one of the casinos there or maybe put it in a fucking soup can. The seven-woman money-in-the-bank match between Liv Morgan and Oscar and Alexa Bliss and Lacey Evans and Shotzi and Raquel Gonzalez-Rodriguez, Hernandez, and Becky Lynch was won by Liv Morgan. More on this in a moment. Okay. For the United States title, see, every match on this pay-per-view was either for a, a championship of some kind or the a Money in the Bank match to get a ch- title shot. And, of course, because they have whatever this rule is, they have to have half and half. It was half women's matches and half men's matches. So... For the United States title, Bobby Lashley beat formerly known as Austin Theory. And Lashley became the new champion. Remember Austin Theory going to get the big push? He was the United States champion. What did that last? Three weeks? Yeah, three, maybe a month, three weeks. Yeah, somewhere in there. Okay, more on this in a moment. For the Raw Women's Championship, Bianca beat Carmella. All right, well, there's someone in that match who's talented. For the, I guess it's the SmackDown tag team title, I believe it is. The Usos beat the Private Profits. No, they're the Street Party. You're getting it all wrong. The Street Party. I'm sorry, the Street Party. No, it's Party Profits. Or Private Street. Or Adrian Street. I wish wish these matches are private. How many matches have we seen them and the Usos have? I mean, we didn't even (laughs) see this, and I'm sick of it. see this. Then for the SmackDown women's title, so both women's world titles were defended. Ronda Rousey beat Natalia. That was probably pretty good, if I had to guess. And then Liv Morgan cashed in her Money in the Bank briefcase and beat Ronda Rousey in like a minute. Get out of here. And won the title at no. <laughs> in a minute? I'd be glad to get out of here. Are you relieving me of my duties for the rest of this program? Can I leave now? I already tried to abandon the show. You didn't let me. I'm not going to let you. All right. Yes. So Liv Morgan, the baby face that gets beat all the time anyway, wins the briefcase. And then after Ronda Rousey, who's fairly heelish, has had a long, grueling match against this other girl. Then she cashes the and beats Rousey apparently very quickly. And then Ronda Rousey 
apparently wasn't too concerned about it, treated her better than she treated that girl that beat her in the, in the UFC because then she apparently picked up the belt and handed it to Liv Morgan and hugged her, and they hugged. Everybody hugged. So yeah, thank you. Now I can go home. Yeah, thank you. Thinking, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm thinking somebody listened to our program here a week or two ago where we said Ronda Rousey looks like she'd rather be at the goddamn dentist's office getting a root canal. And so just suddenly, boom. And they hug and and like said, now what whither will become of poor Rhonda? And I guess so Liv now goes to SmackDown? I don't know. And do you think Rhea Ripley's injury threw any of this off? It better not have been that Rhea Ripley was going to win this thing and beat Ronda Rousey in a minute, and she couldn't because she fucking got a fucking concussion, or I'll give somebody else a concussion. I would have waited to do that. rather. And, and here's the... I, I swear to God, like 10 or 12 people and most of them were the ones that have their favorite girl wrestlers picture as their profile picture. Ten or twelve people on Twitter tweeted screenshots of Liv Morgan holding up the WWF women's whichever title belt. And say, is she too girly for you now? Is she too girly to succeed now? Yes. Just because the office said, hey, Vince wants you to win the title tonight doesn't mean that that hasn't changed or altered her appearance, performance, or perception in my mind. We may have found the only 10 people that still believe wrestling, and they believe the girls' matches instead of the guys. Imagine that. Did we finish the results of this show? Not yet. Damn it. The men's Money in the Bank match. Now, since they had the women open, they're going to have the men's seven-man Money in the Bank match. But no! Because it wasn't good enough, Brian, when it was just Riddle versus Seth Franklin Rollins versus Drew McIntyre versus Seamus versus Sami Zayn versus Mosh Pitt Jones versus Almost. That wasn't good enough. So Adam Pierce comes out and apparently with no explanation whatsoever Otherwise, then this is something I'm doing because it's been such a great night. He adds Austin Theory to the match and makes it an eight-man men's Money in the Bank match. And wouldn't you know who won the pony, Brian? Guess. The man who lost the title earlier in the night? Austin Theory? Won the pony. Won the pony. Won the pony. Theory is added to the match at the last minute for no reason, with no advertising whatsoever and no no purpose no reason and somehow wins that so some way or another they've gotten into a situation where they instead of trying to continue pushing austin theory unobstructedly like they have been trying to do they put the u.s title on him three or four weeks ago whatever now they put themselves in some position where for something they want to do upcoming, Lashley needs to be the U.S. champion. And said, so, well, we'll put the U.S. title on Lashley. We'll have him beat Theory, but then it'll be okay because he'll come out and win this fucking stupid eight-man ladder match and get a title shot at a better title. And uh, 
So he one-on-one, he gets beat by the guy that one of the only guys on the roster that the people kind of view as a real star these days. And then he goes in an eight-man clusterfuck and the scrambled eggs, you know, ends up with him winning. And they think that means more. <sighs> so that was money in a bank. If I, if I, by the way, if I had any money in that bank, I'd think about drawing it out. I'm afraid there may be a run on that bank and possibly investigations from the the government, Securities Exchange Commission, something like that. Go ahead. I haven't spent too much time on social media the last several days, but I did notice something, and I didn't see all of it, so I may be getting some of it wrong. I don't know, but it seemed that a lot of AEW fans after the Money in the Bank event were getting a little territorial, kind of like, Sammy Guevara's better than Austin Theory. I think one of the... <laughs> The exact quote I think I saw that made me laugh was, Austin Theory is Sammy Guevara doing selfies. How would you compare the two, and who do you think has a brighter future, Austin Theory or Sammy Guevara? Austin Theory, obviously, because, goddamn, these kids don't know how the business works. Unless either one of them fucks up in some kind of personal way or it suffers some kind of injury, which was Sammy's style that may not be far-fetched but just taking into account who they are right now what they look like going forward theory is already with the biggest company in the world and already they have decided even though they don't really know how to do it anymore they've already decided they're going to push him and try to make him a star and theory not only has sammy on size and physique, but also his work. Sammy does all the, you know, fucking insane stuff, but theory, that's what propelled me to start watching him to begin with, compelled me, not propelled me, compelled me to start watching him to begin with, was that he's got the basics down. He's got the little things down. He has the body language and the reaction. He is a natural worker. He's athletic enough to do spots and things and such of that nature and cross bodies off top or whatever, but he can work. And he psychologically, in his head, he gets it, I believe, from watching him. I've never talked to him, never met him. Sammy is athletic enough to do the moves. Obviously, he doesn't have the size. He's way too, he'll never be pushed on top in the WWE. And he might not live long enough to be pushed on top in AEW, but he doesn't have the size that Theory has. He doesn't have the... He's got a great heel persona, Sammy does, and that slappable face, but he would never be used in a main event position in the WWE because of his size, not only height-wise, but body weight, and because Theory's in-ring style depends on working and being a really good athletic impeccable type worker that you wouldn't mind getting the ring with because you know he's probably not going to hurt you and you've got sammy who stands out by doing the death defying shit that is he's painting himself into a corner where now that's what people expect so that's what he's got to do but he will never be allowed to do that not only in the WWE, but if, if he got in, if, 
I mean, he ain't going to fuck it. CM Punk ain't coming off the top of a ladder with Sammy. Sammy may dive off something and Punk move. But if you're talking about being in the ring with the top, top guys for the AEW title even, be an idiot to want to risk one or both of those guys in that kind of match. So Sammy's limiting himself with the style that he's establishing for himself. So short version... I think Sammy even has more natural heat getting ability as a as a heel just as a personality but theory because of his size his look and his mind to me that he's getting this already has a lot more upside it's going to go farther and last longer that's just I mean somebody could argue it but I don't see how well, I think it'll be interesting to see how the next several years work out beyond any injuries or anything from doing stupid stunts Sammy's 28, Theory's 24. Theory seems more developed like an adult. And what I mean is like Sammy still looks young. Even though he's 28, he looks a lot younger facially. Well, but he, but, okay, but I see what you're saying because Theory is not, I get the idea that Theory doesn't want to dive off a fucking ladder through a table and blah, 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 even if they would let him do it in the WWE. He's more mature. He's more, he sees this as a, sport and a business as instead of a stunt show that you can do cool things and have people cheer for you. He he seems like he's more mentally developed than Sammy who still acts like he's 16. But in 10 in, in the ring. But in 10 years when Sammy's 38, you know, I'm curious cuz he can't really be the young guy <laughs> what anymore. What will he be doing then for a living because he ain't going to be wrestling? Where will theory be in 10 years? Probably the WWE champion or challenging for it. One last question on uh, Sammy Guevara here. You know, we've always made fun of the fact that Chris Jericho never really elevates anyone. MJF did not come out of that feud for the better. Jungle Boy had a match early on in AEW that was supposed to elevate Jungle Boy. It really didn't do much for Jungle Boy. Santana and Ortiz mean less today than I think they would if they had come in and just been a tag team. Just one of the tag teams on the roster. Right now, they don't mean really much. Right. Even though one of them just lost their hair, and they were just in this blood and guts match. They were just, I hate to say it, but I think the way things are booked, certain guys are filler in that match and in this angle. Is Sammy Guevara actually the best argument and the best case for Jericho actually elevating a young guy that he's working with? Did Jericho, I mean, maybe backstage suggestions or whatever, but did Jericho really elevate him anywhere that he wouldn't have gone to begin with? Because people like all that crazy shit that watch AEW. But then they they started liking everything that Sammy did, but then, as we saw, when they started letting Sammy be himself, the people started not liking him, and he's got that fucking heat-getting personality. I... I mean, it's hard to say. I don't know if he still wouldn't be kind of in the same place he's in if he had anything to do with Jericho. See, I don't know, because remember, when he first got there, I don't know if you remember Sammy's first appearance on TV. I do. He had a giant, what was it, a bear's head? or a? Oh, God, I remember that now. The panda bear on his yeah, head. Yeah, he had a giant panda head, and he was announced as the best ever Sammy Guevara, a guy you've never seen before who looked really skinny, the best ever. And Jericho took him, and I think... Him being in the inner circle, he may be the only guy that came out well, of the inner circle for the better. 
You know what? You're you're right because you remember this shit better than I do. Right? Did nothing for Jake Hager. No one wants to see Jake Hager. Certainly did nothing (laughs) for Santana and Ortiz. And I think the moments that they've shined with the AEW fans, not us, but the AEW fans, like that parking lot brawl with the best friends, that had nothing to do with Jericho. That was them. Every time they get pulled back into the Jericho circle, (laughs) they become filler. There's no one else. Sammy's the only one who's actually come out of that inner circle for the better, which is probably why Jericho dragged him back into the fucking Jericho Appreciation Society. You mentioned Jake Hager. I just the look he has most of the time on his face is like the look on a a fucking mid forties banking executive driving down the interstate in the middle of nowhere when he realizes that because of the Taco Bell he had at the last stop, he's got to take a fucking shit and there's nowhere in sight to stop perpetually that's the look that jake hager has on his face have you ever seen that look brian i've seen that look on jake hager's face i've never seen the banker in question but you know there's another thing that could be causing that look what would that be perhaps while he's standing there and jericho's droning on maybe we don't see it but maybe there are some fitness earbuds in his ear maybe he's grooving to some tunes maybe some jim Cornette rap or who knows what maybe that's what's causing that face you know what now you 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 normally you got your everyday earbuds. People love the everyday earbuds, but now you've got earbuds for fitness. Fitness earbuds. And that's what sets Raycon apart from all the other people because they have earbuds now for specific endeavors. And Raycon's fitness earbuds will help you take your workout to the next level with the power of premium sound and smart tech. And they were actually voted best earbud of the year or best gadgets of the year, best earbud of the year in Esquire Magazine's best gadgets of the year 2021. Esquire Magazine, do they have, do they have penetration and copulation in that magazine? Is that a men's magazine or is that something that you could bring into your home? I don't even know how many men's magazines like that there are today, but that certainly is not Esquire. Esquire is a wonderful magazine if you want tips on the finest polo shirts or perhaps some great cologne you want to get it's a fine publication so it's it's not i was thinking of squire magazine i believe they had i don't some, know what you're the squire magazine the 60s, they had some very questionable thing but here's the thing you've heard it you've heard it on the news ladies and gentlemen when you're working out and you're pumping your your fucking you know workout and your your what is it they say the what? burn you're pumping the burn there you're pumping iron you're feeling and you're the pumping burn. iron and you're feeling the burn and you're really getting into it you got your soundtrack going and all of a sudden poof, the earbuds pop right out of your fucking head they drop like a fucking prom night baby in a fucking stall you poof, right and you've lost your your goddamn soundtrack and and the workout's over and you're pissed and you don't even want to wipe your ball sweat off of the machine. Well, that's not going to happen with Raycon fitness earbuds because they stay in your ears until your workout is over. And then your personal trainer has a special tool that he will help pry them out of your ear and put them back in the case that they, they belong in. They will easily come out of your ear when you want them to. You do not need assistance. But not when you don't want them to. And I'll tell you, folks, and a lot of people have heard, you know, you've heard about this big problem. Brian, with the since people have been working out with the earbuds, the ear sweat causes ear gangrene. Have you heard about this? I have not heard about this. And let's that, just say for the record, we don't know if any of this that you're about to no, say is true. No, this is a scientific fact. I'm telling you, I've been reading up on this. A lot of people using these cheap 
other brand earbuds. They're in their ear while they're working out. The ear sweat gets in there. It causes some kind of fungus among us, which causes some kind of growth in the bacteria that multiplies and multiplies exponentially until you've got ear gangrene. And when you get ear gangrene, the only solution is to cut your ears off. They got to amputate the ears. That's why of recent years, you have seen so many people walking down the streets with these full-sized headphones on their head. It's to cover up the fact that they are earless. They got no fucking ears because of the ear gangrene. That will not happen with Raycon's fitness earbuds because they are specially medically formulated to repel the germological contaminants involved in ear sweat, and you won't get the ear gangrene. Keep your ears, ladies and gentlemen, with Raycon's fitness earbuds. You can keep your ears, and you can hear what you want, because with the unique earbud build and the interchangeable gel tips that also neutralize the ear rot that you will get from the ear sweat. There's no ear rot. And they've also got Raycon's new ear stabilizer attachments. So if your ears are are lopsided or if some every once in a while one of them tips and looks like it's going to fall over, these things will stabilize your ears. They have ear stabilizer attachments. They wrap right around the back of the ear and pull it forward. Except if you look like Opie Taylor, then you've got to have a special size fitted at the shop. And the Raycon Fitness Earbuds offer unbeatable battery life, nine hours of playtime, and 52 hours of total battery. It's nearly double the battery life of the other brands on the market. And I'll tell you what, if you can work out for nine hours straight and do anything for 52 hours, well, I ain't fucking with you. And Raycon's customers love them. They have given the product over 37,000 five-star reviews, and that came from just seven people. So you can imagine how enamored they were. It came from thousands of people who enjoyed the product. Well, there's I've heard that that's the case also. But right now is the perfect time to pick up a pair because you can get Raycon's fitness earbuds for $20 off. That's $20 cheaper than you would normally get taken on these. I mean, you would normally pay for these fine earbud products at buyraycon.com, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash J-C-E. And to make it even sweeter, my listeners right now, not yours, Brian, but mine, get an extra 15% off with the code J-C-E-15. Now, I know we just hit you with a lot of stuff. It's a limited time offer only. So here's what you got to do. You go to buyraycon.com. I've already spelled it for you. You need to be taking notes. Then you're going to slash JCE. And then, <laughs> what's the matter? I'm telling them what to do. You go to buyraycon.com and you're going to slash JCE. No, no, you put slash JCE in the address. Otherwise, people are not yeah. going to get to the correct place. Well, you try to slash me in person, you're going to get to the correct place. You're going to hell. <laughs> Gasoline britches on. <laughs> So then you go to, I'm telling the people how to get these goddamn earbuds. You go to buyraycon.com. You slash JCE. You're going to get these things for $20 off to begin with. But if you use the code JCE15, then you get an extra 15% off. And then if you'll, if you're willing to, if you'll call them up on the phone and you're willing to put out 
No, then in that case, no. you, might, you might get an extra deal from somebody. It just depends on who you talk to there. There are no more deals. There is no quid pro quo with sex involved with Raycon here. Get the wonderful earbuds. Buy them with your own cash that you've obtained legally through hard work. Get the <laughs> earbuds. Put them in your ear. Take them out whenever you want. No gangrene, no rot. They're great. You're hearing great music. You charge them. You use them again. That's the whole process. There are a lot of other words you heard in this ad here. Pay attention to what I just said, ladies and gentlemen. Now go to your wallets and get the green paper with the presidents on it and send it in immediately. Care of me. No, no. You don't have to use cash. You can also send, you know, here's the thing. Folks, send us your credit card number and expiration date and we'll order the Raycon fitness no, no, earbuds no, no, no. for you. I think cash is better. Cash. He just just mail a, a, a piece of paper with your credit card number and expiration date and your full name and no, date of birth. No, you to can't. P.O. Box four three. No, no, stop, 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 stop. You cannot ask people to send that information. Now, but cash no, I don't want is anonymous. To do it. I want I want kids out there. Kids, no, if you're if no, you're no, no, go in your no. parents' wallets and purses. And get the information I just asked for. Okay, listen, Soupy Cornette, let's get away from this. But we want to remind everyone, despite all the fun, these are wonderful products that you should check out. Because why not? They put up with all this. Raycon. Slash JCE. Well, it's hot enough to fry a horseshoe in Louisville, Kentucky, Brian. You know that? this All this week, a heat advisory of the heat index will be almost 110 degrees. And we are talking on the 4th of July right now, even though the people are going to hear this afterwards. I should have said this on the experience last week, but I forgot to because I've been verklempt. But fuck y'all if you use fireworks. I say that every year. People who set off fireworks in their fucking yards and driveways and subdivisions and crowded public areas are assholes and they are tormenting and terrorizing all the neighborhood pets, the dogs, the cats, and the wildlife, anything from rabbits to deers and bears, as a matter of fact. And and Harley hates it. And because this is a long weekend, we've had to put up with her being terrorized and, and verb orally abused by the sound of the fireworks. And it upset. Don't do that to your pets. If you want to, stick the kids out in the yard, bring the pets in, make the kids listen to it, but don't do that to your pets. You don't shoot off fireworks, do you? When I was a kid, it was a big deal, but it doesn't appeal to me in any way. I actually just watched a thing on TV with the uh, people from Nassau County displaying how fireworks could destroy a chicken, and <laughs> talking about the fingers that could be blown off. No, I don't do it, and last night someone around here was lighting him off, and Swami went nuts, which caused everyone else to go nuts. Well, yes, and it's it's just, it's not right. And besides that, leave it to the professionals. I'm not talking about if you go to Thunder Over Louisville at the Ohio River or some big dis community display with the city or whatever the fuck, it's on television. Leave it to the professionals. But just to go shoot shit off in your driveway, fuck, it's loud and it annoys people and it torments the animals. And it, I didn't, when I was a kid, I mean, maybe I was just a smarter, I, I know this is factual, it's not a maybe, maybe I was just a smarter child than most children, but it wasn't, a, and it's not like my mother 
drummed it into me. Jimmy, that's dangerous. You'll hurt yourself. Stay away from fireworks. Like, you know, it's, it, Carrie's mother was drumming into Bible verses in her head. I think her advice was be very careful and watch out. Don't hurt yourself. But that was your general advice about anything. But when I was seven years old, I would look at that. I saw people shooting off fireworks. And I said, it looks like a good way to fucking get hurt. You could blow your fingers off or blind yourself. I didn't want to be anywhere close with people setting off shit that was blowing up. I Is that a stretch for a human being with hearing and sight, cognitive ability to be able to figure out? Stay away from the explosive shit as far as you can. What's the attraction? Well, I think people like the giant display in the sky of things blowing up, and sometimes they want to feel like they're a part of it. And there is a thrill. Well, and sometimes they will be a part of it when they they fucking blow themselves up. Well, look at, look at, look at Harry. He's lit up over the southwestern sky. One of the thrills, of course, in a neighborhood is finding a central area, lighting stuff, and then everyone runs, and you go watch it happen, and then when the cops come, you hide, and then you wait for them to leave, and you do it again. That is fun. Thank God we didn't get blown up, though. Is that what you're teaching your children now? No, that's not what we do here. That's what I did in the mean streets of Long Beach when I was a kid. Yeah, over in the mean streets, as opposed to the bear infestations that you have. SB, I have a wildlife update and an email, just real quick. <laughs> okay. From Dick. Here's the email. Can we name the bear that has been terrorizing Brian's neighborhood, Paul Bear, in honor of your old colleague? No. What? It's a bad idea. Why? Paul Bear? So first Paul of all, it's a bear. woman. First of all, I'm fairly certain a bear, at least one of them that I saw was a woman. You got that close? She flashed me. No, I'm fairly certain just based on the studies that I've been doing here, based on what the neighbors have been telling me about what they've noticed with the cubs and bears in the vicinity. I don't think Paul Bear is a good dad. I just don't think it's creative enough. I don't like it at all. Have you consulted the Department of Wildlife? About the I've Bears? Just about anything. You've been doing studies. No. I am my own personal Department of Wildlife. You're on your own. Well, I'll tell you now. Wildlife. Uh, I actually, I have some news about the wildlife, and, and I'm actually, I'm disappointed. I'm let down. I've, I've had the air taken out of my sails, Brian. That Steve's a liar, isn't he? He hasn't been taking the raccoons away. He's been bringing more raccoons, right? Well, no, I, well, there are more raccoons, but, uh, no, he hadn't been bringing them. No, Bradshaw, he's been doing his, his bit. As we mentioned on the programs in previous weeks, he's relocated two raccoons. There's at least three more. There's a skunk wandering around somewhere, but I'm, you know, I've been a wildlife supporter, Brian, and I, I, I don't know that I love anything besides, of course, my beautiful wife, Stacy, and lovely little daughter, Harley Quinn, but in anything in my life that I have loved more than wrestling and wildlife, right? Those are the two things, animals and wrestling. And there's kind of correlations, like the deer are the baby faces, right? Because they're just cute and sweet and they don't harass anybody or they're, they just, they just exist to be cute and graceful and and cheer up your day. They're the baby faces. They're heels in the Northeast Territory. Well, not down here at Castle Cornet, they're not. They may be to you, and we'll get to that in a second. Somebody's on to you. 
But the skunks, the skunks are not necessarily the heels. They're kind of like the tweeners because even though they do stink and they can, that's only when forced. They only, they only do these things when they have to, when they feel like they're threatened. Otherwise, they're cute little furry looking things. They've got some cachet, like a Pepe Le Pew. He may be a cad and a bounder, but he's kind of a tweener. He's not all the way heel. He's kind of a pervert, isn't he? Well, that's just, they've toned him down, sort of like fucking Quagmire. But then you've got the raccoons, and the raccoons are the heels, because the raccoons are the ones wearing masks. And the raccoons are the ones that have the sharp claws and the sharp teeth, and they're possibly rabid, and they tear up the soil and the sod, and they cause a mess, and they chase away the other more timid animals. So you got baby faces like deers, you got tweeners like skunks, you got raccoons that are the heels, right? Well, guess what I saw just day before yesterday when I looked down underneath the poplar tree where I'd put all that food out for the deer. I don't know. There was a deer, a skunk, and a raccoon all right next to each other eating dinner together. It's true. They weren't kayfabing. I saw behind the curtain. They were not only, it was like the old wrestling cliche, they were not only eating dinner together, but when they finished dinner, they went over to the creek and had a drink together. And now I believe all those, those adults that told me when I was a kid, you know, those, that wildlife, those deer, those skunks, those raccoons, they don't really hate each other. Every time they have a fight out in the woods that you see, they go back in the forest and they have a drink together. And now I, I'm, I feel like I found out there is no Santa Claus, Brian. All right. Well, good luck with but, all that. But. I got another email from Sir Earl. Sir Earl says, Hi, Corny. I'm very sorry to be rude, but honestly, please get a new co-host. Brian is one step away from a damn Republican. I'm sick of his all I care about is money and slaughter animals attitude ass. I'd rather just listen to you on your own than with this capitalist, elitist, cruel, animal-hating POS. And if this is read on the show for dome reason, not some reason, but dome reason. Fuck you, Brian. If you're offended, sorry, I'm not sorry. You suck, you entitled rich fuck. Sincerely, yours, Earl. Yeah, go and fuck the, your mother, Earl. How about that? And the only punctuation in that whole email that I just read was a comma after yours before Earl. Yeah, yours is an idiot, Earl. Go fuck your mother. But you, and that's you know, it. How dare you? He's calling you on this. You talked about, and you didn't even like the rabbits the other day. You had bad words to say about rabbits. Yeah, fuck the rabbits. Fuck the rabbits. Dirty animal. Smelly animal. While we're on the subject, here's something else. I, this is the uh, drive-through, right? Your program. It once was, indeed. Yes. Well, guess who I got an email from? Who? Charlie in Starkville, Mississippi. How do you know it's the real one? It could be a fake. Because I know his email address. See, we've been we've been consulting and consorting behind the scenes. He's a published author. Hi, Jim. My dad worked on rural rural, say that three times fast, rural water systems and taught me how to use a divining rod when I was twelve years old. We used it to locate pipes and also water leaks on the system. It has been scientifically proven, though, that divining rods respond to the user's accidental or involuntary movements, making the results no more than random chance. It is therefore regarded as pseudoscience. My dad, however, says that's baloney, and anybody that doesn't believe a divining rod works is an idiot. 
Thank you, Charlie from Starkville, Mississippi. So that see, you hadn't heard about divining rods either. I had heard about them. I didn't realize that was the name. That is I saw name. a guy. There was a guy, actually, I think it must have been on CBS Sunday morning sometime in the last year, who makes a living. He's made a killing like in California. They fly him out there because they have a drought issue, and they bring him to different farms to try to find water, and he actually has had a success rate doing that with the divining rods. It's just I didn't know they were called divining rods. And see, you thought the whole thing was all wet. Real quickly, before we let you start your program, Brad, the big news that I uh, released on the experience this week, I will go over it briefly here. For you action figure collectors, the original red and yellow Jim Cornette action figure that has been sold out for low these many months is making a limited return. Because as I mentioned, I'm an idiot. And... Since we started selling those original figures, the, if the blister pack was broken or cracked, I put it over the side in the garage and didn't know until late last year that I could just ask Figures Toy Company for more blister packs because the figures are in fine shape, and I had left them sitting in the garage in the closet until then. And now I got the blister packs, and thanks to the Feather Bottoms and Hotchkiss in particular, I also have a website with a working inventory feature because. I couldn't put these for, up for sale before because I had no way of cutting it off when they were sold out. We've only got 84 of these. So that's the this month's Crusade for Children fundraiser on Saturday, July 16th at noon Eastern time. The original, the last remaining copies of the original Jim Cornette red and yellow action figure that has not been sold in, I guess, a year and a half or more now. The last 84 of them will be on sale, 50 bucks a piece, $49.95 actually. So you save that nickel. And the proceeds from all 84 figures will go to the WHAS Crusade for Children at whascrusade.org if you want to look them up. Or you, they accept money any time of the year. The telethon was last month, but they'll take your money anytime you want to give it. And so that's going to be Saturday, July 16th at noon. Uh, get them, stand by. At least we know the site won't crash and the inventory feature works. And it's not going to take me two months to fill these because it's only 84 instead of 2,500 of them. Uh, also, First Class Mail is open now and has been for the past little while to Australia and New Zealand from the United States. And we have unblocked you guys from ordering because we you couldn't order at jimcornet.com for the last several months in Australia and New Zealand because of the mail fiasco backup. That has now been rectified. Purchase with impunity. The Jim Cornette commentator play sets are still available. And because Australia and New Zealand got screwed on the bloody variants, we saved, I tried to save uh, more back, but with the way things went and the demand, we are going to have somewhere around 25 or 30 of the bloody variants that will also go on sale Saturday, July 16th, but only for people in Australia and New Zealand. I saved these back so you guys get a shot at it. And we're going to work out the time, and I'm going to tell you on this week's experience, we're going to try to make it daytime in Australia and New Zealand as soon as Hotchkiss can figure out what he would need to do on this end. So that's exciting. And 
the DVDs for A Corny in the UK, the documentary of my first ever tour of the United Kingdom and live in London, my uncut, uncensored, unexpurgated live one-man show at London's Leicester Square Theater back in 2014. Those are back on sale at jimcornette.com on July 16th for only $10 each because we love to give you the good deals. And you don't even have to slash me at my own, my own website. Just come on. Everybody's welcome. You need no password. Just, just knock like that. Well, the special holiday edition of The drive Through continues right now. Here's the host and star of the show, Mr. Jim Cornette. Hey, wait, what? you're doing this again? I thought we already determined that you're not palming this thing off on me. Let's play some Guess the Program. You want to? Oh, you want me to Since it's my show. You want me to go grab some and try to see what I could do to... No, I don't need you to grab any right now, because I'm going to flip the script again on you. Wild card, bitches. I've got some more here for you, because people enjoyed, apparently, listening to you twist in the wind trying to figure things out. You, the big expert. The big know-it-all. The big blabbermouth. Last time I did this, you want to, you want to try it again? Are you accepting my challenge? I don't have a, a WrestleMania sign to, I'm pointing on one of the the programs hanging on my wall. You want to accept the challenge? Yeah, I'll accept any challenge. You know that. And by the way, I did pretty good last time from what I remember. And that was what you said. You said I did pretty good. Well, you missed a year once. I did several times. I did it every time. I don't think I got the year right once last time. (laughs) Well, I got a couple here. Just a few. I'm going to start you with an easy one. See, this way we get to talk about wrestling without having to watch television. An easy one. Milo of Croton (laughs) versus a rock. Versus Jesus Christ. Okay. (laughs) First match. I'm telling you, this is an easy one. First match. Tony Morelli versus Dick Beyer. Second match. Don Badelman versus Count Billy Varga. Now, let me stop and just say, because people like when we kind of explain what we're thinking. Uh-huh. The first thought, perhaps the lazy thought, although perhaps the right thought, just based off the first two matches listed, would be Buffalo. You would think it has to be Buffalo. It has to be upstate New York. Well, and tell the people why you would think that. Dick Beyer, of course. Legendary wrestler out of Syracuse would become the destroyer, Dr. X, to the fans in the Midwest. Don Beetleman, from the Buffalo area, is the future Don Curtis, who would settle as far away from Buffalo as he could in Jacksonville, Florida. And become the promoter there after his wrestling days. That's right. And the third and But Billy final- Varga, but Count oh. Billy Varga was a big star ah. in various places, and specifically was a known wrestler off TV in L.A. You are correct there. He was. And the main event. Two out of three falls, no time limit. Kokichi Indo and Ricky Dozan versus Gene Kaniski and Lord James Blears. So it has to be Los Angeles because of Blears. Blears wasn't working, I don't think. Northeast and not, I was about to say independent shows, Jesus Christ. Northeast dates in the early 60s. Although Ricky Dozan, it could be earlier 
No. I'm not going to go too early. Oh, no, wait. Dick Byer, though, when Ricky Dozan was in L.A., he would have already been the destroyer there. So it can't be Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. The worm is turning. Who's Blears' partner again? Gene Kadiski. Buffalo 56. Ooh. April 15, 1956. <clears throat> you said Buffalo, New York? Yeah. You're only 5,500 miles off. Oh. The Civic Auditorium in Honolulu, Hawaii. Goddamn. What's the date? April 15, 1956. Billy Varga was in from California. Yeah. Kaniski, because of Blears, he knew Ganya. Kaniski was hot in the Midwest, and he was obviously booked at that point in time or somewhere around that point in time in, uh, in Honolulu to, uh, to work on top with Lord Blears and Ricky Dozan. That's the biggest giveaway that I'm kicking myself over, because when the fuck did he work upstate New York? Never. Exactly. Yeah. Nah. Exactly. You got, uh, Beyer and Curtis got you off kilter. That got me the year. Dick Beyer is what got me the year. It was actually a combination of Dick Beyer, not so much Don Curtis, but Kaniski. It was those two just thinking about names they used on cards and where they would be in age. That got me to 56. But it also got me to the other side of the world. I thought that would be easy for Hawaii and Brian. That's why I warmed you up with an easy one. Well, you know, one of the issues that people beloved by the Hawaiians like myself deal with is the lack of Hawaiian wrestling history that's readily available before Ed Francis. And I think this is a problem that hopefully we can cure one day. You and your people. My people. They've accepted me as one of their own. I'm, one right, of the, I'm their people. Let's try another one. You're, if, if your people can back you up on this. The first match, Jack Bentz versus Ivor Barrett. Second match, the Russian Crusher versus Little Eagle. Third match, Lenny Montana versus, and this is a misprint, and you'll know Rito Carrion. Okay. <laughs> instead of Tito Carrion. Right. Plus, the Von Brauners versus Joe Scarpa and. This one, because it's they're listed as Scarpa and Curtis. This one could be Jack Curtis Sr. Uh, of the, the Coke and Curtis family. Or Which makes it, sense, because I'm thinking already, just in terms of who's there, the fact that the Von Brauners and Joe Scarpa, the future Jay Strongbow, are on the same show, it's putting it in the South. So I know it's somewhere south of the Mason-Dixon line. The question is where? Now, Scarpa... My first thought is Buddy Fuller. That was one of his guys. So it's either Buddy Fuller or his dad. Now his dad, unfortunately... That ain't the main event now. You don't have to go all the way. There's one more match. One more match for a certain kind of championship that will not be... It could either be a giveaway or it could be a fucking red herring. But it's for a title. Dick the Bruiser versus Freddie Blassie. So there you have it. You have, besides the first two preliminaries, Lenny Montana versus Tito Carrion, 
The Von Brauners versus Scarpa and Curtis and Bruiser versus Blassie. Jesus Christ. Would you give me a Louisville program again? I don't think so. Although Blassie. I would, but this ain't it. Okay, thank you. (laughs) And by the way, thank you, John Cosper, for sending me the Louisville history book that he just reissued and expanded. Bluegrass Brawlers. Check it out wherever you find your favorite websites. EatSleepWrestle.com. That's it. So it's not that, though. So read that book to find out about everything but this show. <laughs> Lenny Montana being there, you know, Luca Brasi and The Godfather. Most people think of him as a Northeast guy. Uh-oh, I bring up Lenny Montana. Let's find out who's on the phone. <laughs> Thankfully, it was nobody. But Lenny Montana, the Von Brauners. Did you say with Saul Weingroff? It does not say. Is his photo in the program? It, this is a sheet. It just has the... It's a sheet. So you're line. breaking the rules of the actual game just to try no, to... No, it's, it's, pro- it's a program sheet. It's a lineup. It's not an entire... Not a program. A lineup from the program. You're a cheater. Okay. I guess. <laughs> but the Von Brauners, I'm going to assume Saul Weingroff, because why not? It's a fair assumption, wouldn't you say? I would say. I'm going to... I don't have it, so I'm just going to make a wild guess. Okay. Nashville, 1961. Ooh, you are very close on the year, June 29, 1962. Mm. And I'm surprised that Blassie and Bruiser didn't do it for you. Atlanta, Georgia, the City Auditorium, June 29, 1962. Son of a bitch. And this was for the world heavyweight title. Because at that point, Fred Blassie was the WWA champion in California. A title that Dick the Bruiser would later lay a claim to, I guess is the best way to put it, and make his own. And when when California stopped recognizing the WWA because they rejoined the NWA, it didn't matter because Bruiser already had his own WWA title over in Indiana. But yes, June 29, 1962, Atlanta, Georgia. Of course, Fred Blassie, everyone... Not everyone, but a lot of kids today may just think of him as the old man manager or may have heard about him and John Tolis. Not a lot of people talk about what a big star he was in Atlanta for years. That he was... They brought him back in like 72 during the war, didn't they? Yeah, yes. Fred Blassie in the late 50s and through the 60s was like the Stone Cold Steve Austin or in, in... WWF or Dusty Rhodes in Florida or a Von Erich, he was the guy, the babyface, right before Ray Gunkel in, in the Georgia Territory. And one point there in the 60s, he had, it was the kidney operation, right? Yeah, I believe he, so. He, he lost one of his kidneys and had to retire from wrestling uh, for like a year, year and a half, and opened up a... Uh, a car lot among a couple of other businesses there because of his notoriety in Atlanta. And he would be advertised in the wrestling program with his venture, with his see Freddie for a car or whatever the case. And then finally said, because he'd, he'd had so many different kinds of injuries and health issues and came back from everything. So that, that run in California where they set the gate record at the LA Coliseum in 71 against Tolos, he was already not only wrestling with only one kidney, I think he had had 
some type of legitimate problem with his eyes, right? That they shot an angle around Tolos blinding him. And he was 53 years old at the time that they drew the 25,000 people to the Coliseum. He had already been wrestling for over 30 years. And then the only reason he went to the WWF as a, as a manager, he was still the top babyface in the Los Angeles territory, but the athletic commission had a rule that they wouldn't license wrestlers at that point that were over 55. He turned 55 and had to leave the main event spot in California and went right to work for Vince as one of his top managers for the next, what was it? 10 years. Even longer. No, they rest. They let him wrestle. He came for, in the wrestle against Pedro. That's right. He came in as a wrestler and then transitioned to yeah. being a manager after a couple of years. So he was, he was wrestling for the WWF championship in Madison Square Garden when he was closing in on 60. He was still such a big star. Yeah, he was a bigger star in New York then than at any other point in his career, actually. I got more. You want more? I got more. Oh, I know you do. All right. This is going to be a fun one for you. Hold on. This is a big full-length program. I got to turn to the lineup page. Okay. The first event. Willie Love versus Bobby Gunter. I'm going to skip over the second event for just one second. The third event, Johnny Dobbs versus Gene Albert. Fourth match, Mario Duba versus Ken O'Connor. Why do I feel like I'm in Malden, Missouri? Next match, Frank Altman who is billed from Seattle, Washington, against Jack Bernard, who is billed from Louisville, Kentucky. Jack Bernard. And I've never heard of him. Okay. And the main event, Irish Jack Kennedy versus Roy Dunn. Big, that's two out of three falls with a 90-minute time limit. Roy Dunn, of course, at one point was a claimant to the World Heavyweight Championship. Do you have any ideas so far? What was the second event? Well, I didn't tell you that one yet. Do you I have know. any any thoughts or or I'm nowhere first, on this. You're nowhere. 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 The second event. It was actually Will when you, the early part of the show because I didn't recognize wrestler names. I really thought like, oh, this must be one of those Henry Rogers shows. Yeah. <laughs> and now you know it's just way back in time. The second match on that card with the main event of Irish Jack Kennedy against Roy Dunn. Bill Willis versus in one fall 15-minute time limit contest against a fellow named Jack Adkison. Okay. And that's the card. What time is bell time? Bell time is 8.30 p.m. Uh, any other information from the program you can give me? Well, let's see. Let's look around here. Let's see what it says. Uh, they got a down at ringside column here. Got a picture of Roy Dunn with his world championship belt posed next to Billy Sandow. The Billy Sandow or the fake wrestler Billy Sandow? The usually? Billy Sandow. Okay. And it says here that the promoter of this event drew outdrew his opposition promotion Three to one last week in the first test of that, the opposition had moved in and they drew 834 people. And this promotion drew 
2,659 people last week in this town. Is this during the Dallas promotional war? Wait a minute. Hold on. You are correct, sir. Oh, okay. I thought that was the bad sound. No, well, I, I didn't have the other kind of music, so I thought I'd just give you... That was kind of like that, 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 uh, you're fucked. That's it. No, <laughs> no, it wasn't wah, 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 wah. You are correct. Dallas, Texas, during the promotional war. Because Jack Atkinson being Jack Atkinson, I thought it had to be home. But then the rest of the card, I'm like, okay, there's something going on here. And this is a part of Dallas history I don't know well right now. And this is one of the reasons I wish there was a Dallas wrestling book. And this is one of the reasons I'm collecting all these Texas programs to try to figure out the entirety of the history of Texas wrestling. Give me a year. 57. Eh. 1953. Fuck. January 13th, 1953. And there's a little article in this program on page, I believe it's, uh, is it seven? Hold on one second. The headline is Jack Adkison debuts against Mr. Muscles, Bill Willis. This was the debut Wow. Of the future Fritz von Erich wow. in the Dallas Sportatorium, January 13, 1953. I understand after that match, he got on the mic and he said, one day my kids are all going to be NWA world champions. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, on that topic, if we could take a quick break from your game here, I got a program I just got. This is from June 13, 63. This is one of those Leo Garibaldi Texas programs that I love. These things are just okay. the most you, gorgeous. You could have you tried me on that one. You didn't have to give me the date. Well, it's not really about the card. It's about one of the articles. What you just said reminded me of it. Next week, Bruiser Bill Watts set for debut. Big Oklahoma star. Bruiser Bill Watts out to make Oklahoma debut. Big Bill Watts, mammoth former Oklahoma University football star, is one fellow who can match the little fellows in speed and agility. Despite his huskiness, Big Bill is a speedster in the ring, and his hard-charging flying tackles really rattle the opposition's teeth. And, when Bill hoists his opponent up for a body slam, that hapless individual feels like he is going into orbit. Watts was an all-state tackle while in high school at Putnam City, Oklahoma, and it was only natural that he should attend Oklahoma University under famous gridiron coach Bud Wilkinson Bill played with the Sooners in the Orange Bowl in 1959 when they trounced a tough Syracuse team. Who's on that team? I gotta look at that. He presently mixes professional football with his grappling. After signing a bonus contract with the Houston Oilers, he was sent to the Indianapolis Warriors in the American League. He plays tackle and defensive captain for the Warriors. Bad news for many Texas wrestlers... <laughs> is that Watts intends to devote more and more of his time to the wrestling game and less and less to football. The Big O will hurl his 295 pounds of, uh, the word of is here twice, of, of muscle into the Coliseum next Thursday, June 20th. An opponent will be announced tonight. So Bill Watts coming into Texas. Bruiser Bill Watts. That didn't last long. In Canada, he wasn't Bill Watts, he was Bill Watt, because the promoters thought Watts was too close to Watson, and you will not be anything <laughs> close to Billy Watson, how dare you? 
So that meant that every time they asked who was wrestling, they said, what? Yeah, who's wrestling? What? Yeah, I want to know who's on the wrestling show. What? You're going to back to, go back to the game now? Let's go back to the game. I got one for you here. <laughs> Please. The first event, Leo Seitz versus Bill Howard. Second event, John Tolos versus Red Bastine. Third event, Gordon Nelson versus El Gran Marcus. The semifinal event, Steve Strong and Jeff Ports versus Alberto Madrill and Jose Lothario. Jesus Christ. And the main event for a championship that would tip it, Mad Dog Vashon versus Superstar Billy Graham. Wow, there's a lot to this card. <laughs> for a title that would give it away. At first, I thought it could be Florida based on some of the participants, but I've ruled that out. I don't think it's California. Texas is the big suspect on my list, but so is, well, AWA was, but actually by the end of it, it wasn't. Based on where guys were stars at different points, Billy Graham was a star in Texas in the 70s. This is definitely early 70s. Mad Dog Vashon had been a star in Texas earlier than that. I don't remember if he came back to wrestle Billy Graham in Houston ever, but that's one of my top suspects. If it was for a title that would give it away, it wouldn't be a title in Houston, though. That would be maybe Dallas, but maybe not. If it was Los Angeles, it would be a complete giveaway. Would they have done this match in Los Angeles? Can you give me the undercard again? The undercard again, Bill Howard versus Leo Seitz. Red Bastine versus John Tolos. Grand Marcus versus Gordon Nelson. Steve Strong and Jeff Ports versus Alberto Madrill and Jose Lothario. And one more clue. The program is already promoting next week, Andre the Giant versus superstar Billy Graham. Fort Worth, Texas. 1974. Ah! 75. You were one year and 50 miles off. <sighs> was it Houston? Aug August 5, 1975, Dallas. I was going to say Dallas, and I thought Dallas would be too obvious. That's why I, why I went with Fort Worth. Sportatorium, Katie's, and Industrial. And next week, next Tuesday night, Andre here faces superstar Graham in a match and in arm wrestling. So who's the champion in that match, Graham and Vashon? The match was for the Texas Brass Knucks Championship. Oh, see, I, I would have thought Houston anyway. If you had told me that, I would have went right to Houston, actually. And by, and by the way, folks, the, the Texas Brass Knucks Championship, that is a match without disqualifications where punches are legal. And there must be a winner. Do they have a picture of the trophy? They do not. They don't have the trophy. Because they didn't have a belt. They had a trophy they with belt, the had a brass knuckles yeah. on it. How do you book that, though? You're bringing Andre in to wrestle Billy Graham, assuming he beats Mad Dog Vashon and retains the title or wins the title, whatever it was. 
But they're going to arm wrestle too. Yes. Well, in the arm wrestling, they do the arm wrestling first. Graham starts kind of strong, but Andre gets him as he's almost beat. Graham turns the table over, whacks Andre with the table or the chair, takes off. Andre's mad. People can't wait to see the fucking main event. Finally, the main event gets in the fucking ring. Andre gets even. Graham gets some fucking juice. But some way or another, and I don't even know because I don't know. I don't have the books here in front of me with the finishes, but I would imagine that uh, since Graham was the top heel, that Graham would have tried to save himself by doing something crazy and getting disqualified and Andre making a comeback and running him off and him taking off. That's the way you'd do that. And people would have loved it. I got one more for you. You want one more? Yeah, this is fun. You got you to gotta have one more here. This, this might be a little test for you here. Okay. And it's advertised that every bout is a wind-up. Could have been a main event anywhere in the country. A wind-up, by the way, used to be what they called the main event, the last match, winding it up. I was going to say a wind-up kind of puts in my head a certain time period it would certainly be before. So, the opening match, Elmer Estep versus Jim Austeri. Second match was scheduled to be Pat Welch versus Tony Martinelli. But according to the handwritten notes on this document, Martinelli was replaced by Rudy Dusick. Next match, according to the notes, the best bout of the evening Art Legrand versus Sandor Zabo. When you say notes, the person who owned the program left notes in it about the actual quality of the matches? Yes. Wow. Yeah, as, as a matter of fact, um, in the Rudy Dusick versus Pat Welch match, the note is Rudy really fixed him. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the semifinal, Reb Russell versus Yvonne Robert. The notes were Yvonne Robert was a neat guy and Reb Russell, it says he was dirty too. He had tape on his arm and kept rubbing it on Yvonne's eyes. Yvonne took it off him and rubbed it in his eyes. (laughs) Think about how, what a big pop that spot probably got back then. Fucking caused a riot. (laughs) And the main event, two out of three falls, 90 minute time limit described as what about Vic Christie versus Emil Dusick, who was described as dirty as the devil himself. So you got Jim Osteri against Elmer Estep, Tony Martinelli replaced by Rudy Dusick against Pat Welsh, Art Legrand against Sandor Zabo, Reb Russell and Yvonne Robert and Emil Dusick and Vic Christie. The fact that there's a Dusick in the main event and another Dusick just around to be thrown into the card. I don't know if it's too simple to think it would be Omaha. And a lot of fans don't probably don't realize that Omaha, Nebraska was actually once a thriving wrestling town. Not just the middle of nowhere. Sorry if you live there, by the way. <laughs> that. Oof. Year is going to be tough. Omaha, Nebraska. I'm going to go with Omaha. 
just because I don't have anything else that's a better pick right now. And I'm going to go with 1951. March 12, 1945 in Camden, New Jersey. Really? Camden, New Jersey. Wow. And they're in, it's a four-page foldover, and there's a column called Radio Alley. Uh, which talks about, I guess, the radio reports of the matches and et cetera, and says hello to a lot of the fans that come by to the live events. And it says, Ali Gossip, the band leader who was scheduled to be interviewed, was sidestepped in last week's broadcast because the windup was a one-fall affair, but I'm going to endeavor to get him on the air this time. The band leader who was going to be interviewed on the wrestling radio program was named Pat Patterson. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so they basically, they did radio uh, uh, calls of the wrestling matches, and that served as their promotional vehicle instead of television. And also, if you pick the, the three people who pick the winner and come closest in judging the time of the fall on Christy and Emil Dusick, will each receive two ringside tickets with the compliments of the promoter. So I was thinking it would be a little bit later, and I was thinking it was I me mean, speaking of the promoter. I was thinking it was them. Uh, and Camden Beer sponsors broadcast abouts each Monday at 10 p.m. on WCAM 1310 on your radio dial. If you collect wrestling programs, you will find out about more defunct breweries and beers than you could <laughs> ever imagine. And in Camden, apparently in 1945, there was a 12 o'clock closing law. So the Matches had to end at 11.45, and that was the curfew, so that the patrons could be out of the building by midnight. If a match was still going on, they rang the bell and stopped it. Is that something a promoter wants, in the sense that it gives you an out, it lets you do things with the booking? Do you like when there is something like that, an automatic end that's out of your control and everyone knows it? Yes, because... Remember, they used to do that in the garden, right? In the 70s? Curfew, yeah. I mean, at 11.45, if your show has gone three hours and 15 minutes, it needs to be stopped by the city authorities. You know, for fuck's sake. Especially when, you know, in the old days, you only had five or six matches, if that. So, I mean, if it was, if you know about it ahead of time, as a wrestling promoter, you're not going to let a mandatory curfew fuck up your main event because you know about it ahead of time. But what they used to do back in the garden days was they'd put the main event on earlier in the night anyway so that the, uh, the main event for the next show could be advertised before the people left the building and also so the heel that fucked with Bruno could get out of there before he had to fight the crowd. And the curfew would generally stop some tag match that went on last anyway and people were already leaving to to beat the traffic or whatever so yeah i mean you know a mandatory curfew sounds like something that would fuck with wrestling but if it was 10 o'clock at night your show started 7 30 or 8 i can see but no not if you had a midnight curfew and it still fucked your show up you're a fucking idiot and amazing, too, when you think about some of the shows that did not have that you know you hear those legends about those texas shows with dory funk senior how long did they say he wrestled for? 
legitimately like the Texas death match that went hours and hours and people. Well, were yeah, but, but, but see also the thing is they got that thing to the point where they only advertised the Texas death match. And then they would advertise standby matches on the card because the people knew, Oh, Dory Funk senior is having a Texas death match with cyclone Negro or whoever the fuck that could be. That could last two or three hours. So to build on that mythology of the Texas death match, they, advertise that and sometimes only advertise standby matches in case there was time. But they really, they put the time in. It wasn't like shaving for an hour Broadway. They had, it was specifically, they were out in public in front of people for an hour at 44 falls and an hour and 44 minutes or whatever it was. And by doing that, the legend grew. You know, I'm sure it was up, but I'd love to know what the next week really was. The next time they returned there with the rematch after that. Yeah, well, probably people were still there. They were so tired out from, uh, but it, hey, I got one more here. I got one more. Hey, you said right. the other one was one more. Well, I got, but I got one more because this will be fun. Okay. I think this will be fun. Unlike this the other is, ones. Unlike the other ones, which were miserable for you. Because this one, you got folks from all over the place. The opening match. And this uh, apparently had something, uh, a military connotation. I've never seen one of these people advertised this way before. But Stu Gibson, Colonel Stu Gibson of Louisville, Kentucky, against Sergeant Sam Steamboat of Hawaii. Now, Stu Gibson was uh, from Louisville, Kentucky, and he was a local guy, and he was a Kentucky colonel. I don't think he was a colonel in the army, but he was a Kentucky colonel. But did you ever hear of Sam Steamboat being a sergeant? No, and I'm not saying that isn't true, but I certainly have never heard that, no. So, but but in this case, Colonel Stu Gibson versus Sergeant Sam Steamboat. Second event, and this is a misprint. I'm going to tell you what's written, and then you're already probably going to know who it is. But from Samoa, Chief Ava. Versus Rip Rogers. <laughs> third fall, or third fall, third match. Enrique Torres versus Cato. What? Cato? Okay. Obviously, it says Enrique Torres from Palo Duro, California versus Cato from Japan. And, and as I said, Chief Ava is from Samoa. Rip Rogers, by the way, built from Florida. Next match. And this Cato, for the record, would have predated the TV the show. That's well, right. it would have predated the TV show, but not the radio show. Oh, that's true. That's Green true. Hornet's been on the radio since the 30s. Fourth match. Larry Shane from Detroit versus Fritz Von Erich from Waterpool, New York. <laughs> Larry Shane is the favorite wrestler of Dave Brzezinski. I believe he actually lived upstairs from Dave Brzezinski. That's one yeah. of the reasons Dave became a big wrestling fan. One of the huge babyface, leaping Larry Shane, was yeah. a huge babyface in the Midwest. Detroit was killed in a car wreck at the height of his career. Semi-final event. Hartford, Connecticut's own Bull Curry against El Medico from Mexico City. And the main event... For a championship 
that is not the one that you think. Luthez from St. Louis versus Johnny Valentine from Washington State. Two out of three falls, 90-minute time limit. Okay. There was something you said earlier that made me think Texas, but I've said that about just about every single program you've mentioned today so far. <laughs> Rip Rogers made me think Texas. Rip Rogers, not the famous Rip Rogers who curses a lot and knows how to train wrestlers, but Eddie Graham broke into the business. Well, not broke in, but the first real break he got was his Rip Rogers in Texas from Dory Funk Sr. Right. Sam Steamboat wrestled in Texas, although I never heard of him as Sergeant Sam Steamboat. Bull Curry, major star in Texas. There's a title that would give it away. Well, the title would give away the time, the, the year, if not necessarily the location. Johnny Valentine's a big star in Texas. Give me a couple of the matches again. Stu Gibson versus Sam Steamboat, Colonel right. versus Sergeant. Chief Ava would not be Chief Peter Maivia, but Chief Neff Mava versus Rip Rogers. And of course, Chief Neff Mava was the only Samoan that anybody knew in wrestling. So when Peter Maivia needed a Samoan name, that, 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 that's how they, but they didn't know how to spell it either. Or pronounce it. Yeah, so it was or just pronounce it. Maivia. Uh, Enrique Torres against Keto. Larry Shane versus Fritz Von Erich, Waterpool, New York's favorite son. Bull Curry, El Medico, Luthez, Johnny Valentine. El Medico. I'm going with Houston, Texas. Bull Curry versus El Medico. Houston, Texas. If it's not Houston, it's a fucking another Texas show you're trying to hit me with. <laughs> Johnny Valentine was a big star there. He's the champion going into this match with Fez. Houston was one of the few places, even more so than Tennessee, that did gimmick matches. So the idea that there's a military match on the show kind of, even though it's the undercard, I mean, usually they actually did gimmick matches for the main event. Like real gimmick matches, like loser rides a donkey. You know, loser rides a donkey <laughs> down Main Street. Like crazy shit. I'm going with Houston, Texas. 1959. And ladies and gentlemen, oh, by the way, hold on here. Update. Sam Steamboat is stationed at Fort Hood. So he was in the oh. service and was stationed at Fort Hood. And we are in Texas, but we're back at the Dallas Sportatorium. God, I didn't think you'd hit me with Dallas twice. God. April 8, 1958. And think about this. I was one the year reason. Off. The reason why I said the title would give you the date is because this was Luthez defending the international world title. Oh! Against Johnny Valentine. He had already dropped the belt to Hutton. Yeah. But this was, he, in, in addition to going overseas to defend the international title that he created for himself because everybody around the world, all the wrestling fans, news traveled slower in those days and people didn't realize that there's was no longer the world champion. He dropped the NWA belt on purpose to his hand-picked successor, Dick Hutton, who didn't draw 15 cents in Chinese money, but was an NCAA wrestling champion. So Thez would do a job to him for him. And then Thez named himself the international champion and did an international tour for more money than he'd make with the NWA title. 
and he came back here and defended the the international title. And the, the headline is, Great Luthez puts new world title up against Big Valentine. International world title won by Thez goes to the main event winner. And this is Dallas. That means this, and this is, is Dallas. This is happening with the permission of the NWA. Yes, because Hutton wasn't fucking drawing 15 cents in Chinese money. That's the worst thing Thez ever did, really, was insist on Hutton. And, you know, things end up kind of working out in a way in the end. But when you think about the different people he could have dropped it to, Vern Gagne, Buddy Rogers. I mean, there were various candidates that would have been better. Anyone would have been better than Dick Hutton. Benito Gardini would have been better than Dick (laughs) Hutton in terms of at least being a wrestling star. But he wasn't worried about who was the biggest star. He was worried about if I'm going to do a job, it's going to be somebody that can really legitimately fucking stand a chance of beating me or otherwise fuck it. Good luck. I haven't seen much. Dick Hutton, based on anything you've ever seen or heard, more specifically, was it like a Dan Severn situation in terms of trying to convert a wrestler into a pro wrestler? What was he like in the ring? Did he have any good qualities in the ring? Like, What have you heard about Dick Hutton from anyone you've ever asked about him? Well, from, from what I can tell, Dan Severn was Nature Boy Ric Flair compared to oh, wow. Dick Hutton. Well, it just, that was the thing. I mean, Dan understood that there was a show business aspect and Dan had also had a, you know, tremendous background in professional sports and the UFC and et cetera, et cetera. Hutton legitimately won the NCAA title and was one of the highest ranking amateur wrestlers in collegiate wrestling in the United States, but then turned pro. And basically what was it? Two years later, he, Thez puts the belt on him. He was still green. He was boring. He could wrestle and he had the size, but there was no person. I mean, look at the pictures of him standing there. He doesn't even have a fucking facial expression. He was the original Dick same face, right? And it almost looks like he's from another era. It almost looks like he was transported from wrestling 20 years earlier. And that's probably why Thez was in love with him. Yeah, really. But that's, but he never, he never got it and he never caught on. And, you know, he he had no personality, no showbiz, no charisma. He couldn't build the match. You know, he I mean, it's not Dan the Beast Severn. Dan had a nickname. Dan understood building, hyping fights. Uh, but no, it was just Hutton was nah. And he, after he had that little run, what we wasn't more than a year and lost the belt, he was out of the business pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Did he, I mean, he stayed mostly wrestling around his home area for a little while, and then you didn't hear his name again. And that may be an interesting question to a, or interesting, interesting answer to a trivia question. To a Huttontorian. To a Huttontorian. He is the only NWA world heavyweight champion in the history of wrestling that within what, just a couple of years after he was the champion, he was out of the business completely and was in, not in any demand to be booked anywhere. It, it just, that's, it was what it was, right? It's amazing there weren't more defections from the promoters during that year. And there, and there were a bunch. The NWA lost members, and that's why... It's amazing there weren't more, quite frankly. Yeah. 
Well, they, that's when they just started, you know, well, we won't drop out of the NWA. We'll just name our own champion. And the other regional champions started sprouting up. And that's why they had to go ahead and go with O'Connor and then Rogers to get the, all the promoters back in the fold because, uh, you know, they could draw money with those guys. They couldn't draw any money with Hutton. Well, do you think Dick Hutton used Manscaped products <laughs> before his big matches? It honestly doesn't look like he did. He he looks like one of those guys that, that was born shaved. Um, but folks, <laughs> if you'd like to shave Dick Hutton's crotch, uh, you know, here's the problem. We talk about this all the time, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages out there, is the swamp rot in your crotch and the shaving your balls and your taint and your sphincter. And and the summertime is the time for landscaping and or manscaping because taking control of your bush is important. Whether it's the bush you've got between your legs or the bush you've, you're married to or the bushes in your yard, you need... Sometimes you want the bush you're married to out in your yard. You want a yard bush inside, and you don't know what you want to do with your own bush. I'd whack the whole thing down. What? But, folks, the products at Manscaped are so good, you're going to be showing pride in your new bush-free, weed-free yard or playground. You'll have the best-kept nutsack on the cul-de-sac. No pesticides. No pesticides in this stuff. You just shave it right off. You don't spray it and let it wither and die. Because Lord knows you don't want things withering and dying down in between your legs. But you can right now go to manscaped.com and look at the Performance Package 4.0, the Incredible Lawnmower 4.0, the electric trimmer that is a an unruly groin bush's worst nightmare. The trimmer is designed to reduce grooming accidents, shave hair on loose skin. You know, there is no ball machine at the gym. You really can't tighten that stuff up. If you were born with a wrinkly coin purse, that's the way you're going to die. They do droop a little bit more in old age. Manscaped, the Performance Package 4.0, has the Lawnmower 4.0 and other care items. But if your balls are drooping down around about the area of your knees, if you've reached that age, you might have to find a sling somewhere else. Manscaped is taking charge of the cleanliness and the smelly goodness of your coin purse, but certainly not the the swinging d dissension of it. You know, like one of those bridges that blows in the wind. They just flap to and fro. Anyway, the second best tool, it, almost, it would almost hypnotize you. You get an 80-year-old man... <laughs> And you strip him naked and you push him to the side no, just a little no, bit. No, don't do that. And Why would balls, anyone do that? Just not enough to knock him over, just to get him <laughs> wiggling. And the balls will swing and it it looks like the pendulum. You know, the balls of time. No. But anyway, the second best tool in the performance package is the weed whacker. Because it's a fine-tuned nose and ear hair trimmer to make sure you... You can cut down those nasty no nose pubes. That's what they call them. The nose pubes, the hair you got coming out of there, it's, it's unsightly. And you can also add some pep in your step with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Spray-On Testy Toner. 
And if you right now go to manscaped.com and use that code DRIVE to purchase a performance package, well, with your perfunctory performance package purchase, you will get absolutely free, that means you pay nothing, two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag and the patented high-performance chafing-reducing Manscaped Boxers. But there's a bunch of other products on the website to help you maximize your aroma and minimize the stank coming from your nether regions. All you got to do is go to manscaped.com, use the code DRIVE, and you'll get 20% off and free shipping. Again, 20% off and free shipping, manscaped.com. Use the code DRIVE. It's time to get rid of the Amazon. And make your dong amazing with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from our friends at Manscaped. Well, Jim, speaking of people who are neatly groomed before we move on too much further with the show, there's an image going around from the UFC this past weekend. Of course, the WWE were in Las Vegas on Saturday night. (laughs) And apparently after all that was done, just a nice family night out together with Vince McMahon in a blue suit with Stephanie McMahon. Her husband, Paul Levesque, whose name she seemingly is not using, and Pat McAfee in a neck brace, <laughs> dressed the way he's always dressed. He kind of has a uniform. Have you seen this image? And what are your thoughts on, look at us, we're normal, we're going to go hang out together? I know, I've seen it. McAfee's great because he's got a neck brace on selling whatever he did on TV here recently, like I did at, at SummerSlam back in 90, what was 93. Uh, love Pat McAfee. Uh, Stephanie looked like she was fairly happy to be there. Vince looked like, what is this? It's a seat in the arena. I'm not used to this. I Where's the gorilla? I need to be at gorilla. He didn't know what to do sitting there like a normal fan. At I'm afraid if he gets accused by any more women, he's going to be on every TV show on TV. <laughs> every time he gets accused of something, it's like, put me on TV more. Let me just go out in the public. I'll be seen. Wait. We haven't seen this much of Vince in public in years, but um, but yeah, he so he was looking like I don't know what's going on here. Triple H, somebody put the picture out with the the description of what Triple H was thinking in his mind. He was like, "Yeah, Vince, remember when I told you you could buy this for a million dollars? Glad you dodged that bullet." <laughs> and. Uh, I get Triple H looks like he's lost some weight, trimmed down, which after a a heart, what did they call it? A heart occurrence, a heart exhibit, a heart. A cardiac event. An event, that's right. Or a heart-shaped facility or something. I don't know. (laughs) But you should do that. Heart-shaped facility. (laughs) Or a a heart-like structure. A cardiac box. But some. Anybody that comes out of a cardiac box is is over and done. And done. Um, oh, you beat me. <laughs> see there. But did you did you see that other people were tweeting pictures of I think it was Jim Ross and Tony Khan at a UFC event and saying, look, they were in the same building and wouldn't even speak to each other. The the Tony and JR weren't there. That was somewhere in the spring. They were in an event and people got the picture and put them together, but there wasn't any danger of a pull apart breaking out on the floor in between fights at the UFC show. They, they weren't all there at the same place, but, but yeah, Vince is going to, 
I, I'm wondering if he's going to start doing cameos on the local news or just popping up in different commercials. Hey, it's Vince 4th of July fireworks sale. If they book him on a Tonight Show, that'll be the big test because Jimmy Fallon's a safe spot, especially if you're part of the NBC Universal family. If they book Vince on the Tonight Show, that says they're in panic mode. I think the only way he'll do it is if he gets to guest host instead of uh, just being on the show. You know what? To be quite honest, he'd probably be better as a host than as a guest because he's horrible when you try to, whenever you've seen an interview, (laughs) he doesn't say anything. But as a host, he feels like he has to be the performer. Yeah, he performs as a host. He'd turn it into Tuesday Night Titans when he's the guest. Letterman and Costas and everybody. Yep. Nope. He's the exact opposite of of Vince, the promoter, the the fight hyper, the, you know, PR guy. The fight hyper. You better lock that down before Jericho gets it. Oh, hey, Chris, come on now. You can be the insurrectionist. I want to I want to trademark the fight hyper. When we look at everything that's happened over the last 20 something years, from the moment Bob Meyerowitz had to sell the UFC, Semaphore Entertainment had to sell it, and the Fertitas got it for nothing, for WCW like prices. There were stories that Shane was trying to urge his dad to buy the UFC. Yeah. And he was always interested in different things. Whatever you want to say about Shane, he was the one who was really interested in ECW and UFC. And Vince didn't do it. If they had, do you think it would have survived? I mean, would no. they, have, <laughs> they would have had no idea what to do with it and would have ruined it, right? I mean, I'm not saying Shane would have. I'm saying once Vince got his hands on it, it would have been no respect towards what it is or what it could be. It would be, let's turn it into what I want it to be. The only wrestling promoter, well, I won't say the only one. Let's, let's a couple of wrestling promoters that I think could have made the UFC work would be Bill Watts or Eddie Graham. They could have made the... Because <sighs> Greg Gagne, and I mean, everyone says this and everyone dismisses them, but there's something to the idea when they say like, oh, we had an idea for something like the UFC years before. I mean, everyone had the idea for like boxer versus this guy or wrestler versus this guy. Yeah. But it's not exactly the UFC, but what about like a Vern? No. Because, see, here's the thing. Vern's TV show in the 80s was boring as shit because Vern was still doing 1950s wrestling in 1980-something. And I know a lot of people are going to go, oh, well, Cornette, he's the same way. He's stuck in 1980-whatever-the-fuck. No, dipshits. Listen. The idea is bring the product up to date for the modern attention span for the modern, you know, not instant gratification, but television gratification audience, just don't make it phony. Don't make it silly and stupid. Don't expose it. Don't tell people what you're doing. And then that's the kind of thing that Bill Watts or Eddie Graham would have been perfect at because they did that style of pro wrestling anyway. And with a guy with Watts's mind or a guy that just knew how to manipulate people's emotions through telling physical stories like an Eddie Graham with his booking and his finishes, they could have taken the UFC, which at that point wasn't making any money and did have, you know, all kinds of issues with getting licensed and everything with the athletic commissions. 
And they probably would have worked some of it, but they would have been smart enough to know that the least they worked, the better off it was because that was part of the attraction. It was a shoot. And it's not like Watts and Eddie Graham were unfamiliar with shoot combat sports because Watts had not only been an amateur wrestler, played pro football, but Eddie Graham was the mentor to Jack Briscoe, who was the NCAA heavyweight wrestling champion and the most outstanding amateur wrestler in the United States that year. And so they understood it would have been sort of with, with guys like that, it would have been like the early days of wrestling where not a lot was worked, just what made a difference and what meant something to the, to the box office. And you'd keep it straight and you'd try to get people involved in the, in the personalities and in the trash talking and the hype, the fight hyping. What Dana White has allowed some of the guys to do, the Conor McGregor's, the Diaz brothers, because they're weird, but he knows with the top guys, he's let them cut promos and get away with stunts because he knows that helps his bottom line but he's not going to let the whole fucking crew up and down the roster just go crazy and start cutting wrestling promos, doing wrestling entrances and whatever the fuck, because then that would diminish the strength of what he has, which is people still take it seriously and believe in it. But with certain people, Chael Sonnen's a fucking master promo manipulator from his days of being a wrestling fan. And with the guys who knew how to do it, you can tell that he'd let him. I'm not saying that anybody's working the fight or even that both sides of the equation were working the promos, but that was like Ali and Frazier. Ali knew what he was doing, but Frazier never forgave him till the day he died because Frazier wasn't smart to it and Ali couldn't smarten him up because Frazier couldn't cut a believable promo working. He had to be mad. So point I make it is with Vince... He would have re-racked the whole goddamn thing to fit his interests and obsessions and whatever else, and I think that would have probably doomed the UFC. Shane had the idea. He, Shane always liked shit. I mean, of course, Shane's ideas have been all over the place. The What was it? The Raw Underground Fight Club. Dabo Kato. Dabo Kato, but Shane always <laughs> likes... <laughs> underground shit like that the concept of it fight club fighting a testosterone shit people in arenas screaming and yelling over something that's shane got that from his dad and he saw an opportunity at buying something for a song that had tremendous upside he just being vince's father and especially it being 20 years ago I don't think he had realized that Vince is not the perfect promoter for every endeavor in the world, and he probably would have mucked up the UFC. But an old-time wrestling promoter of days gone by when credibility was important and they knew how to rein things in and work just enough to sell tickets, an old-time wrestling promoter could have t taken the UFC and... And done something with it. I mean, not that Dana White has it, but more than more than Vince would have, because Vince would have turned it into showbiz too. But did UFC need a Bill Watts or did UFC need a Sam Mushnick? Um, well, maybe both. Because when you think about it, 
I think Dana White's more Bill Watts than Sam Muchnick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, and, no, there's no Sam Muchnick yeah, yeah. Dana White, no. So, you know, I think that the the bombasticness would have driven of a Bill Watts and the guys that he would have, he would have had a powerhouse Hobbs in there, no doubt about it. But that would have been more the bombasticness of Watts and the way that he presented things would have been better for UFC than than uh, the Vince McMahon, you know, philosophy being in charge. But I, th- I think probably with the success they've had, ultimately the right people bought UFC. I don't think anybody else but Dana White and Joe Silva, an old-time wrestling fan who basically applied wrestling matchmaking to a shoot sport. And when the sale happened, he said, fuck it. Thank you very much. I'll take my minuscule percentage, which is now worth millions of dollars. You'll never see my fucking ass again. And we haven't, but they, they made the right decision of, um, you know, of who'd be running that thing to get it worth four or $5 billion. Jim, we have some breaking news as we are recording here. Joey Chestnut has once again retained the Nathan's International Hot Dog Eating Championship. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going to predict he ate 78. 63 hot dogs. What? To make himself the 15-time Nathan's International Hot Dog Eating Contest champion. But wait a minute, didn't he do 70-something last year? I don't know. I haven't kept touch with the... uh track of the stats here because he was kicking the shit out of the japanese fella what was the japanese fella kobashi no but i think it's the opposite and i could be wrong i'm not an expert in the field and we should it's kind of more like wrestling than wrestling is i think kobayashi worked for an outlaw group and then nathan's is like cmll and they're like you can't ever come back well yes they're there because two years ago kobayashi tried to hit the stage Remember on the live telecast on ESPN and they, they had security that. take him <laughs> off. Yes. He got it. But I thought Chestnut pulled in at the last and, and beat Kobayashi. And then Kobayashi got on the outs with the promoter and tried to shoot his own angle. But Chestnut has been beating himself every year. I thought he'd be up in the seventies. Do you think they like, like a Joey Chestnut has like a outlaw garbage mud show thingy? Like, Oh, they ain't fucking pigs in a blanket. They're fucking bullshit. Oh yeah, you know you got to, you know, or the or the the shortcuts they take where they, you know, try to get the 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 kids size portions or whatever. You know, there's got to be some mud show competitive eating going on. Do you think there should be rules? Because I've seen like some of these guys talk about their strategies. It may have even been him. I'm not sure. And it's less about actually eating or chewing, and more about like just getting in your mouth and then getting water in your mouth and just getting it down. Yes, just swallow it. Just open your throat up and just swallowing it. That doesn't really seem to be in the spirit of the event, though. I don't know, but that that's advice I've always given. I've always said, look, don't worry about chewing. Just open your throat up and take it all the way down right at the same time, as far as you can. With your love of food, is there a limit? Or is there a specific kind of food that you actually think if you were in a competitive situation where you had to eat the most of anyone else who was there, I would guess some of the other top eaters in the world, is there one food that you actually think you could Go toe-to-toe with anyone over. I Well, I'm not in training anymore because I have a a normal human weight now, and I don't binge eat, and I'm not severely stressed and aggravation eating. But I would say the, the one food 
that I would be able to eat more of than anybody else and nobody has ever topped me in this establishment was the old Clarksville Seafood. And my, my buddy Steve Near ran it. They closed down a couple of years ago. There was a problem with the ownership of the location of the property as the city of Clarksville was expanding and all this other stuff. But I could eat that stuff. And I told Mama Cornette this one time when I was just a young lad. I could eat this until I just fell over sideways. So if, if I was going to challenge somebody to an eating contest, it'd be fried fish at Clarksville Seafood, but they're not open anymore. So, son of a gun. All right. Well, that was your food update here on the show. I did. I, I've, I've done pretty good. I lost a burger eating competition over in England, but they didn't tell me that instead of multiple good tasting burgers, it was one giant four pound patty with a fucking loaf of bread for the bun. And that goddamn freaking nature, nature Joe Hendry beat me. He ate the whole thing. Did you compete against Sven Gulli or was he just the judge of a contest? You he was the he was the judge. He was the judge there because I was the guinea pig trying to and and see he he got me too because this was at at Victoria's old restaurant Squared Circle up there and I could eat the burger but he did a a last minute swerve on me with the competitive eating commission and it was a triple order of the fries and a Twinkie shake which was delicious. That sounds awful. A Twinkie shake? A Twinkie milkshake. Oh, my God. It was insanely good. You got your milkshake and you got your Twinkie. The only thing better is to put them together. You know how to eat a Twinkie, don't you, Brian? You just open your throat up and let it go as far down your gullet as you can without chewing. Is that okay? Well, to each their own, I guess we could say here on the 4th of July. Any other topics or anything you have today? This is your show. I know, and you made me think that you may have well, had another I got, I got thing one, or two. I got one thing. <laughs> You're fucking twisting in the wind. I got one email that's going to take you to task about something else. Would you like to hear it? Apparently, you've made another I have a question mistake. here sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com. <laughs> no, no, no. let, let me bring this up just real quick. Because you asked a question here a few weeks ago on a program from one of the viewers who talked about the the announcer on the AWA television program. It was Super Sunday 83. It was the Hogan-Bockwinkle title match. And you read the question that the questioner was asking, that the announcer had said that the basically Bockwinkle had demanded such a high fee for this title match against Hogan that promoter Wally Carbo had to raise the prices of the chicken, the chicken prices. You remember this one? I do remember it because it made me laugh a lot. I love this. Yes. Yes. Well, apparently now we get an email from Thomas who says he's from Canada, but we won't hold that against him. And he listened to that conversation we had and the guy that asked that question. And he decided to find the video and hear it for himself. The listener who asked the question says Thomas apparently misheard what the play-by-play announcer had really said in a serious tone which was that Bockwinkle had demanded such a high fee for the match against Hogan that promoter Wally Carbo had to raise the ticket prices for the event, not the chicken prices. Oh, what a letdown. But the ticket prices. I was, was going to say, that's the best thing Vern ever did. And now it's not Remember even Remember we kept asking, saying, well, no, it's the St. Paul Civic, so he didn't get a cut of the concession stand. What does he care what the price is of the chicken fingers? But it was the ticket prices, not... 
the chicken prices. So never mind. All right. Well, Jim, several listeners in the last few days have been sending in various clips, various quotes from a Kenny Omega. It's not an interview. He, I guess, was on a video game stream talking to fans. (laughs) But I mean, that's kind of, that fits in. Where else would he be? Where else would he be but on a streaming video game? But we have speculated and talked about his injuries. He's been gone almost a year now. And apparently he's still... Really? How time flies when you're enjoying yourself? Well, actually, I think AEW could kind of use him with some of these other guys out there. It would be refreshing. No, no, I'm not going to say. There's no reason to make a bad situation worse. Well, the bad situation may never become worse if the injuries keep piling up. So I have some audio here for you to review. Apparently, Kenny Omega on the CEO stream someone else is playing a game he's actually watching them play a game wait a minute so he's on the internet watching someone else that he doesn't know play a video game why well, assume that's what it is right now it's a still frame of a guy who i assume is the one playing the game and kenny has his hands on his head so i know he's not playing he's got game. his hands on the guy's head while a guy on his own head on his own head before oh, you go where's the guy's head the guy's head is right in front of the camera, talking to the camera. Kenny has oh, his hands so on his so own his, head. His mouth, his mouth is, he's speaking. His mouth is clearly visible. Let's get some audio here and find out what you think about Kenny Omega talking about his injuries. What has your daily routine been like getting into working shape? Oh my God. <laughs> you want to talk about it? The mere mortal couldn't comprehend it. No. Look, I, uh... If I get another major setback, that's it. That's, I'm, that's it, I'm done. Because I can't do this ever again. It's like two times, three times a day, really painful rehab. And and without even knowing, like, what's it going to be like once I get back in the ring? I have no mm. clue. It's scary, actually. And, like, you know, you see some people that come back to the ring, and um, you're just happy to see them back. And I think that there's a different kind of expectation put on me. And... I think that anything less than what they're expecting wait, is wait, already... Wait, 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 what Batman episode is that? Can we listen to that now instead? That appears to have started a video game that they're playing. It appears to be Street Fighter of some sort here, but any initial thoughts what on... What, is this a public forum? How did we get this recorded? Is he just blathering to random people on the internet about this? Well, in a sense, a show. This isn't a program. This is just he's just a session having a conversation. It's a session. His friends are playing games. He's hanging out and willing to talk to the people typing in questions to be asked by someone else. Where does a grown adult man get this much free time? At the arcade. Where do you where do you think? Fuck. Well, he has been out. I mean, I'm sure the people making the video game are very happy. He's busy right now doing something else. But here he is talking about well, all these anyway, injuries and the I idea mean, he may be done if he has another serious setback. Well, maybe he should have thought of that before he started doing all the goofy shit where he dives out of the ring like a fucking whooping crane and just lands willy-nilly wherever and all this other stuff. Um, I don't wish that he should injure himself. I just... I think he should take this time off to reflect on his profession and get a new one so we don't have to watch him anymore. 
I don't want him to suffer any pain. I, hey, you know what? He could be the richest video game developer in the world and just develop video games out the sphincter constantly, and I would just be happy as a clam for him as long as he's not involved in the wrestling business, which he sucks at. So I do not wish him ill, but as far as am I crossing my fingers, we don't have to watch him on wrestling television again? Yes, because he's a fucking embarrassment with his phone sex voice and his doll wrestling and his kid wrestling and his fucking whatever the fuck else he tries to do to give a middle finger to the wrestling business. So, and it, did you turn again, the AC up? No, it, it, it's just, it's a hundred degrees over here. Besides that, again, can you see Mick Jag if Mick Jagger had had an operation on his vocal cords? Can you see him hanging out on the internet talking to some random guy giving them the prognosis on his return to singing and recording while they're playing a video game or is Mick going to sit down with fucking I don't know 60 minutes? Or a goddamn Wall Street Journal or some major news outlet about that. I, I, yeah. I'll give this random video game fan the scoop that I may never wrestle again if I get one more injury. And wh what does Tony Khan think about that? Wh wouldn't he say, hey, dipshit, instead of blabbing about your prognosis or your condition or an update or whatever for free on the fucking internet with some goof how about we'll advertise you're going to come on my national television show for the next two weeks and when you do you can say the same thing there that you just said on twitch or whatever and we'll get a half of a rating off of it and then it'll get a bunch of news and all the websites will be talking about it off our tv not off your goddamn leisure time activities that is interesting because Tony Khan does allow the guys, obviously, a little more leeway with third-party deals as compared to WWE. When it's something like this, don't you kind of wish it was on your YouTube channel as well, opposed yeah, to... Yeah. That's the thing is, no, I'm not advocating that they ought to do like the WWF and take away the talent's money that they make on YouTube or Twitter or whatever the fuck, if they're doing something not related to wrestling, we've talked about that playing video games or whatever, but the talent should have the common sense that God gave a goose, as Mama Cornette used to say, to instead of just randomly mixing with people on the internet and giving them little tidbits of wisdom or potential newsworthy uh, announcements, advertise it get a fucking audience do it to 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 build something and to further something instead of just oh, i'm sitting around here with my dick in my hand playing video games i'll talk to this fucking guy jesus christ i wish i had that much spare time yeah if guys want to do this where they sit there and have someone ask them questions that are typed in you can do that on your channel it's actually probably a good idea for some content some live content you could do on the channel to keep people there but Let's get a little more audio from Kenny Omega about his injuries. Oh, seriously? Comeback. All right. Unrealistic is going to lead to a lot of ridicule, which is what I get every day anyway. <laughs> so you could probably under understand and imagine how difficult it is. 
struggling twice or three times a day trying to get things to work that never maybe worked before and trying to reroute things in your brain to get around the things that aren't going to heal. Yeah. People think, you know, I, oh, Kenny, Kenny's hurt. He took time off. Snap your fingers. I come back. I'm 100%. Life doesn't work that way. Bodies don't work that way. Athletes don't work that way. It's very difficult to formulate this plan and to <laughs> execute it. And we'll see how... Everything he says, even when I, he's trying to be genuine, it's like he's doing a press conference for no one. You know well, what I why, why are the periods in the middle of the sentences? It's like he's cruising on Lake Havasoma and he's losing track of where he's going. Because he's trying hard to find the right words to use. It's almost like it's a performance is what it comes across as. It comes across as disingenuous. Well, we've got your thoughts and theories on Omega here. But to open us up to a bigger conversation, what he's talking about, the pressure a wrestler would feel from coming back from multiple injuries at once. And I don't know how many wrestlers have done that where, I mean, I can't imagine too many have had the opportunity to take a year off and have multiple surgeries to heal everything up or as much as possible. But do you think, forget about the fans, do you think the people in the office, well, forget about that because nowadays... We have to talk about nowadays, because back then they were wrestlers. Do you think like a Vince or the people in the WWE or a Tony Khan, do you think it's easy or hard to understand physically what some of these guys, especially some of these guys that are closing in on 40, what they're going through on the inside? Well, no, you group that awkwardly. It's a lot easier for Vince to understand than it is for Nick Khan or Tony Khan or any of the other cons, because Vince has had some of those surgeries. And Vince says, even, you know, bodybuilding isn't, to me, it isn't a professional sport, for fuck's sake. But he's dealt with athletes and dealt with close friends that have had surgeries, had a few of his own from the quads and blah, blah, blah. Vince understands a little bit more, but at the same time, Vince understands the guys the way that they, they used to deal with this situation. If you had a top guy that had a severe injury, he'd take as much time off as he just as he had to, and he'd come back as quickly as he could, and he'd modify what he did in the ring. And to work around that part for however long or forever. But now, in the modern era, the guys have the guaranteed contracts and they have the luxury of being paid, even though they're they're not uh they're not working. And also the companies have the luxury of guaranteed income because, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, when you got hurt in the old days, you couldn't work. You didn't get paid. That's why guys rushed back. Guys also rushed back because if, it, if you were a top guy in a territory and you had either a, an interest in seeing the business continue to do well, or you had a piece of it or whatever, the territory was suffering. Lawler being out for a year with that leg, the reason he was out that long is because he tried to come back too fast and re-injured it at least once. I think it was twice. Because everybody was losing a fucking fortune without him on the cards. It's been the same in, in other situations, in other places where a guy was, you know, instrumental or integral to the territory's success. So, you know, anybody that's been around wrestling long enough from the territory days knows 
what it takes, you know, to do what these guys do and also how to work around those things. There's never been the luxury until modern times where, like you said, a guy could just take a year, a year and a half off and he's going to get paid and he can have whatever surgeries he wants and fix everything that, you know, that's, that's a great thing, but you still with, with old Olivier there, he's in his late thirties and he's had a variety of injuries. If he intends to come back and try to do the same shit that he was doing with those swan dives over the top rope out into the ether and all this other foolish shit, even if he hadn't been hurt, he's getting a little old for that shit to begin with. So he's going to need to, if he doesn't want to modify his style, then he shouldn't come back. Because if he doesn't modify his style, he's going to hurt himself again, and then by his own words, he'll be done. He's not He's not getting younger. It doesn't matter whether he's been hurt or not. He ain't going to be doing that shit when he's 50, so where's the cutoff date? Is it 47? Is it 42? Is it... 39 is it today yeah that's where it's going to get interesting because traditionally with wrestling the older you got the smarter you got and that usually meant you knew you didn't have to do as much yeah but this guy doesn't have the capability to be smart or learn because he doesn't understand the wrestling business he doesn't know anything about it it's obvious the way he talks the way he works (laughs) the way he he thinks that he thinks that he's a goddamn thespian a stage artist acting his, out his art in a physical sense he doesn't nor has he ever understood what the wrestling business is or is supposed to be so he's the last one that's going to be able to figure out a way to do what's smart for himself and his well-being in his career he's going to try to go out in a blaze of glory with that fucking Pavarotti solo regardless but beyond so- omega just this overall problem. You know, in baseball, there's a saying, there's an expression that when a pitcher comes up, he knows how to throw, he doesn't know how to pitch. And a lot of the times, a pitcher, as he gets older, and maybe doesn't have the velocity he once had, learns how to pitch. Learns how to pitch. Learns how to fuck with the mind of the batter. Learns how to play games with him. Learns how to do things other than throw a fastball faster than anyone else. And that was traditionally what would happen in wrestling. But again, beyond Omega, a lot of these guys that have become stars in what I will just call the work rate period, where it wasn't as much about character and promos or angles or things you could pull off later in life. It was about getting people to love you and your style of wrestling and the kind of matches you're having because of that, because of the kind of matches you're having. Your moves. Because of your moves. Do you think that kind of wrestler is going to have a really difficult time past the age of 35, 40? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Because it's not, you said, well, a pitcher, young pitcher knows how to throw, but he don't know how to pitch. And then as he gets older, he learns how to pitch. Some of them don't. And some wrestlers, they can do all that shit when they're young. But as they got older, the good ones would learn how to work. And the bad ones wouldn't. And I don't, that for the same reason that right now Austin Theory is what we say earlier in this program, he's 24 years old. Yeah. He's a much better worker than Kenny Omega is and ever will be right now. Now, you know people are going to lose their minds if they hear you say that. 
Explain. Because he's a better worker. Because work has nothing to do with doing the fucking moves. It, it helps if you can. But it seems to me that a guy like Theory understands what the business is, at least has to be now. He's, you know, in the old days, it was understanding what the business is. It's more important to get them to believe what we're doing than it is to put on a great show because they'll come back to see more of it. We give them a great show, they'll never come back again. We piss them off and make them want to come back and see next week, we've made more money. But just with Austin Theory, his basics, his fundamentals, the way that he moves and conducts himself in the ring, and the things that he, the moves that he does and the things that he does fit him and don't embarrass or hurt the business or anybody that he's working with. Twinkle Toes just does moves and dives. He doesn't have any idea how to put a match together to make sense from start to finish. He can't fucking hit the ropes properly. He's self-trained. He acts, he's a video game character. And that's one-dimensional and fucking blah. And it's the same thing all the time. Because he's acting like he's a character in a video game. That's why his matches don't make sense. That's why nobody sells anything except when they do sell. They they hit the right button, so they gotta sell. Theory's a guy like MJF. He'll be able to play with your emotions. He'll be able to take you on a ride. He'll be able to psychologically and subliminally get you into what he's doing because there's no holes in the logic in the match. And if, if Theory has as much freedom on promos as MJF does, then he'll be able to talk you in instead of just this goof pretending to be a video game character because he likes to sit around with his joystick in one hand and press the buttons on his video game with the other one. That's why Austin Theory is a much better worker. I didn't say acrobat. I didn't say move-doer. I didn't even say performer. He's a better worker. And what the business that we're in relies on working, or it used to, and it still should. There'd be more people watching it. Well, Jim, I have some breaking news that is just coming across the wire that Dave Meltzer has hired an attorney. He heard what you just said. <laughs> And this is blasphemous, and he's hoping something actionable. If it's blasphemous, he ought to have hired a priest so that I could be exercised. But since I'm in pretty good shape right now, I'll see his attorney and I'll raise him an attorney that will defend me from his spurious claim. And you know the man I'm talking about, the man, the myth, the legend. Play that music. <laughs> I'll play it again. Stephen P. News. If you need to an outlaw mud show or two. Those are the rest. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been wrongfully terminated. <laughs> If you've been harmed in any way, if you have a co-host of a podcast that has too quick a finger on the soundboard, regardless of what predicament you happen to find yourself in, just give newlawoffice.com a log on or a call at 888-692-8084 and the legendary Stephen P. New 
will pick up that phone and tell you to hit the bricks and get lost. No, he will pick up that phone and he will then pick you up several million dollars in judgments like he's done for so many. We read off the amazing figures. It is now well in excess of 80-something million dollars that Stephen P. New has gotten in judgments on wrongful termination cases and wrongful injury cases and wrongful things of such that he makes right because nobody turns right into wrong or wrong into right, which if you've got a right, he'll turn it into a wrong. If you've got a wrong, he'll turn it into a right. And believe me, two rights don't make a wrong, but they do get you going in the opposite direction. NewLawOffice.com, Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084, and we are going to have him shortly on one of these programs talking about some of the uh, repercussions that some of the other legal events and things have in the uh, in, uh, as related to the wrestling business. Some very interesting things that we're going to be discussing with Stephen here very shortly on the program. Uh, you know, a lot of wrestlers just put themselves at the risk of getting sued just on a daily basis and don't even realize what they're doing. But by gum, I do, because I've been sued about 15 times. I can give you a whole list of things you're not supposed to do. Newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084 for the man, the myth, the legend, Stephen P. New, and whatever case you may have against a greedy, avaricious corporation or individual that is through their own negligence and lack of caring, have put you in harm's way. There is recourse in the legal justice system as long as the asshole that's messed with you has a big fat wallet. Stephen P. New will put his hand in that man's pocket and pull that wallet out along with balls and several other things. What goes on in that mind? He's going to pull out Who's balls? Steve, Your knows. mind. What are you talking about? He's going to pull out balls. He'll stick his hand in the man's pocket. He'll pull his wallet out. And he'll pull that guy's balls out with it for trying to mess with a, a client of his. That's and what he doesn't Steve just, Steve does. And he doesn't just mess with rich people. Anyone who is nefarious and does awful things. He's well, why do you want to sue a fucking homeless bum? What's that going to get you? A box? You know, that's why Willie Squeegee. Sutton robbed. That's why Willie Sutton robbed banks. He said, well, "They said, why do you rob banks?" He said, "That's where they keep the money." All right. Well, let's see where you they know. One time, I I actually I was with Stephen P. New one day, and he had his hands full. He was carrying a box, and he said, "Would you reach in my pocket and get my car keys?" Well, I reached in his pocket and I was fiddling around in his pants pocket there and I couldn't find the car keys. And he said, I bet you feel a little foolish reaching in my pocket like that. And I said, I certainly do. He said, if you go just a little deeper, you'll feel a little nuts. All right. Stephen P. New. Yep. He's the man for you. <laughs> we will find that out. But Jim, let's get a question or two. in before we wrap things up, I can't believe the way you've just treated Stephen here on the show. but Jim. This next question it's was... It's the 4th of July. We're having fun. We're celebrating. We are certainly lighting people up. Jim, this question was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Jeff in upstate New York. I am currently watching Roddy Piper's Georgia run for the first time, and it's been really fun to see him banter with Gordon Soley. As a kid who grew up in New York, I loved his early WWF run, but felt his post-WrestleMania 3 work to be spotty at best. I was hoping that you could offer critiques on Piper's run in L.A., Portland, Georgia, and Crockett 
Jesus. As well as his time in WWF. Which run or runs did you favor and why? Well, good God, this is an essay question. We could be here for a while. I didn't see really the Los Angeles run. I don't know that too much of that even exists on video, does it? There is a good amount on video, not the greatest quality, but there is a bunch of stuff with him and Chavo off Spanish TV, yes. Um, well, in the Spanish language TV, which would have been, what, 79-ish or thereabouts? Uh, 76, 77, what 78. Okay. 79. And then he went to Portland. I've got more of the Portland stuff. I have the Buddy Rose collection. Portland, and everybody was uh, uh, nostalgic for Portland, and it did have its own appeal portland wrestling and it was different than a lot of the other programs and the fact that they were able to keep that small crew and that small territory fresh and exciting with you know they use the same amount of guys on their tv that wwe raw does now of course their show wasn't three hours long but it was a whole lot more interesting because the guys were motivated because every week they came up with their shit and Don Owens had a booker, but the guys had a lot of freedom there, and he had a lot of smart guys that knew what to fucking do. And they came up with a lot of, sh a lot of shit that kept that thing exciting and intriguing and kept people coming back. I love the Georgia stuff that the questioner is talking about because that was, that was what, 82? And uh, VCRs, TBS was starting to get you know, on more cable systems or more cable systems were starting to pop up. I didn't have to go over to Weasel Dooley's 30 miles away and watch Georgia wrestling because uh, they had cable in Nashville and I was starting to get friends down there to, to tape a few things for me. And But I was, that was the dream come true because Piper was going to work with Lawler. And Piper is a baby face and Lawler is a heel. And at the time, we hadn't seen Lawler heel in, in like three years at that point because he had switched back to, as a babyface after he'd come back from the broken leg. And we're all set for it, and the promos are leading up to it, and it's great, and then suddenly, and there goes Piper. <laughs> so that was a great little spot there, uh, and he established the role of the color commentator in wrestling with that run, everybody, I know a lot of people credit Vince and Jesse Ventura, but no, everybody who saw it remembers, okay, this is a brand new thing. A wrestler is a color commentator and it's Roddy Piper. And anybody who saw that at that point, never saw another color commentator ex wrestler without thinking of Piper. Would you say that's fair? He created that. Piper created it, although he wasn't what we would think of as the traditional heel commentator. Everyone kind of became a version of Jesse, although not as strong as Jesse. Piper was conversational. Yeah. Piper was having a conversation, and he was always respectful of Gordon Soley. There was never any combativeness between the two of them, even though Piper was friends with the heels, sided with the heels, sometimes helped the heels. Him and Gordon got along. And that was, you know, because he was doing that job as an announcer would as a former football player, you know, who was asked to go on ABC Monday Night Football. He's he's being himself. He's playing it straight. But anyway, I, I like Piper in, in, in that position. But I my favorite stuff was the Carolinas. 
That's what I was going to say. What do you prefer, Georgia or Mid-Atlantic? Yeah, no, Mid-Atlantic was where, I mean, that's where he became full-fledged Rowdy Roddy Piper. He had a couple of years there with the best talent in the business. Um, He and Flair were fucking great. But, I mean, you know, just that period of time, he had gotten old enough and had enough experience and had gotten all the size he was ever going to get and was working with the best talent in the country. Like I said, the Flares and the Snookas and the, the whole Carolinas crew, that TV was tremendous. And at that point, Crockett had bought the Nemo truck and switched from studios to the arenas for his syndicated TV, so it looked bigger. Everything was happening in the Carolinas in the early 80s, and that was an incredible run. And God, he had heat there. And remember, that's it may not have been the only reason, but it contributed that George Scott switched Piper babyface after he got stabbed that time in Raleigh. Because it's like, he's got so much fucking heat, but he's over, and he can talk. Let's, you know, let's make use of this and go in a different direction. But uh, the Carolinas, I mean, as as far as wrestling, if you're just a wrestling fan, of great wrestling and great wrestling TV and great wrestling matches. Piper's stuff in the Carolinas was better wrestling than the stuff in the WWF. It's just once he gets a hold of Hogan and Cindy Lauper and all that stuff, that's what everybody remembers. But the actual wrestling, you know, Piper and Valentine and the dog collar, the whole nine yards, his Carolinas, that was it. That was the best. How much of his WWF run did you see up until 87? Um, I say, you know, yeah, the first couple of years, I'm still trying to watch, especially the big shows as much as possible and anything involving, because I I loved Piper. When Piper came to the Carolinas, I was one of the happiest campers in the world because that's when they had just opened up Cincinnati and I was going to get to see him. And I did uh, several times live in Cincinnati, thanks to you know, Crockett running that territory. So, you know, I was always a fan ever since the first time I saw him. And I would sit, they got Channel 5, whereas the Sheik's TV was on Channel 5 at fucking Friday night, at Saturday morning at 1 a.m., right? And nobody was watching it. I'd stay up and watch that. But Channel 5 for, for Crockett's show, they gave them like Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. And I was trying desperately, even with my souped-up antenna, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock for a VHF station in Cincinnati wasn't easy. But I would watch Piper through the snow and the hiss. That's how much of a fan I was of his. So I, no matter where he went, I tried to watch it, and I did obviously see the whole WrestleMania build and the war to settle the score and the stuff with Cindy Lauper. And nobody could have carried that off at that time in the business, I don't think, except Piper. I think he was the perfect guy for that spot. You know, when it comes to guys in Mid-Atlantic at that time, specifically Flair and Piper, and the modern wrestling fan, the fan who's, let's say, 20 years old today, and they're looking at wrestling with modern wrestling eyes, do you think, because I don't know if they do, if they understand, because you see people like critique Flair's work now more than ever before. And I wonder if they realize how special these guys were in their time and then yeah. you really have to look at it that way. Piper's promos were the most unique promos ever to a lot of people. 
Now they may not stand out as much, although in the scripted era of today, they may. But do you think it's hard for some people to evaluate some of the, not big stars, but revolutionary stars of the past because of where we are today? Yeah, I... The problem with Piper's promos, people have seen stuff like that since then, probably more in movies and TV shows than they've seen in wrestling. Because nobody was that good off the top of their head with no writers and no preparation time at being a fucking nut. But Piper was. And he, at the same time, he would come up with those little catchphrases and the little things that you'd remember without even really meaning to, probably. Just that's the way he... Once he started, he was going somewhere. And he didn't always get there, but most time he did. Roddy Piper um, was one of the wrestlers that wrestling fans copied the most on the playground. Yeah. Because you just... He was amazing. And the thing is, you said people critiquing Flair's work with Modern Eyes or Piper's work with Modern Eyes. And... It can go one of two ways. If you're looking for dives out of the ring and high spots over and over and all these weird moves or people going through tables or whatever it is they do every match, every TV show, every week now, then you're not going to think that they're, like you said a little while ago with Omega and or Austin great workers. Because people now think that's what work is. But Piper and Flair, especially when they were working an angle with each other, because they were friends, so naturally they'd take more liberties with each other. Your friends can get stiffer with you than, you, than a guy you don't like. And Piper's style was so different that he looked like he was in a fight. And, and to it, some it, fans, I've actually heard some people say he was too sloppy, but that defeats the whole purpose of yeah. what he was. But besides that, he's he's throwing shit at you, and hopefully as much of it's going to land as possible, but sometimes it don't in a fight. But but the animosity, the the emotion, the passion that he showed when he got on somebody, it was like they were he was going to rip them limb from limb. And I saw him actually get on somebody in Cincinnati. I've told his story on the way to the ring, because Cincinnati was a rowdy crowd in 1981-82, when Crockett opened it up because they hadn't drawn big houses in Cincinnati since the Sheik, you know, folded up in the late 70s, but really since the early 70s when he was his business was hot. So there was a lot of pent-up demand. Georgia opened up Columbus, Dayton, places like that. They couldn't get in Cincinnati and make it go. Crockett finally did. Suddenly there's eight or 10,000 people showing up at Cincinnati Gardens for wrestling in a town that has barely drawn a thousand people the previous fucking seven, eight years. And those people were fucking hot and they were ready to go. Piper's going to the ring. This guy fucking comes out from the side, boom, clocked him once. And Piper was all over that guy. Those quick punches he would throw in the wrestling match. Same thing. Only it worked on this guy in a shooting fashion because he went down and Piper was on top of him. And then all I could see was Piper's fist going up in the air and coming down behind the other people that were scurrying away. The cops ran in. They picked the guy up and they carried him out by his hands and feet and he was twitching. And Piper only had a hold of him 15 seconds. But it was indistinguishable from the way he looked when he got on the guy in the wrestling match. 
because he had that boiling over passion and animosity and aggression. And it looked like, especially with Piper, because he knew he wasn't the biggest guy, that he would shake his head and he would back up as a heel and he would play the chicken shit. But when he got on you, he was trying to rip you apart because he knew he had that had to be his style of attack. So the point I'm making is the guys at that point, they were better workers because they imparted you the feeling that they were really ripping at each other rather than engaging in a choreographed performance of gymnastics. So there, those guys work had nothing to do with trampoline flips. And it's amazing how well Piper's work worked as a heel and as a baby face. Like when and he, that's, yeah, people they, hated he him when he was doing it. anything. Yeah. He didn't have to change anything. It just the promos and who he was talking about. And he didn't change the style of promos. He just changed what he would get upset about and the people he was talking about. And that was the entire metamorphosis from heel to babyface, which is the perfect one. No difference whatsoever except your goals and your opponents. Well, Jim, one final question this week, and then we'll get some songs. This one was sent to CorneyDriveThru at gmail.com from Mike. What do you tell the talent if they forget a spot during a match? <laughs> so I guess twofold. As the booker, what do you tell a talent when they come back and they forgot a spot, either insignificant or important? And two, if you're at ringside and you have a wrestler in the ring and you could tell something's wrong, do you do anything? Well, okay, maybe this is worded in an unwieldy fashion. If I'm a booker and I'm watching a match and two guys forget to do a spot, I won't have any idea because I don't know what the fuck they were going to do. All I gave them was the finish. And you got to go 15 minutes and fucking here, boom, over it up and uh, the referee to blah, 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 whatever the finish is, and that's it. If they forgot a spot... I wouldn't have known they were going to do it anyway because a booker doesn't tell the wrestlers how to have the match. A booker tells the wrestler who you're going to wrestle, about how long it's going to go, and who's going to win, and probably how. If they botched a spot, if they fucked it up, if one guy forgot it, and the other guy was so one guy's going for a hip toss, and the other guy's going for a head scissors, and they fall down like a monkey fucking a football, then I'm going to know and I'm going to ask him about it. But that's not forgetting a spot because forgetting a spot the way it's asked sounds like we just left it out we forgot to do it now if it's in the finish then i'm gonna have a problem and then as a booker i'm gonna say what the fuck why didn't y'all do the god how we forgot well you need to pay closer fucking attention because the reason that spot was in that finish is to make it make sense on tv next week when we announce the stipulation for your fucking rematch, and now there's no reason to have that stipulation, you dumb fucking morons. So how do you forget something in the finish? And that was the rule of thumb for a long period of time until guys started, you know, concocting these magnum opuses where they go over every single one foot in front of another move for the entire match. It didn't matter what you forgot. In the match whether you talked about something beforehand, wanted to do something, whatever, as long as you didn't fuck something up where people saw that it was a fuck up 
And I'm not talking about missing a drop kick and the other guy takes over. I'm talking about where you guys went to do something. And it obviously fucked up to the point where the fans could tell that both of you were trying to fucking do something and it fucked up. That exposes the business. That's bad. That's going to get you yelled at by me. And if you forget to do something that's important in the finish, whether you fuck up and anybody notices or not, that's going to get you yelled at by the booker. But just because you didn't do a spot in the man, who gives a shit? Did anyone ever get mad at you or did anyone ever fire back at you kind of with like the opposite of the Eddie Graham argument? Like, you gave me too much. I can't remember all of this. What do you want me to do? No, because that would have been... (laughs) Then my or any other booker's response was, well, you're absolutely right. I gave you too much. Here, let me take care of that. Now you got nothing. What did you just take? What was that? What was that noise? I took I a fucking eraser and went over the guy. <laughs> you got nothing. All right. Was so ever- no, that 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 would not be a thing where anybody would ever said, "Oh, don't give me such a complicated finish." Maybe amongst themselves, the boys would say, "Oh, god damn!" But you know, for as good as the Midnight Express were, was there ever an occasion where you're at ringside and you could tell something was off with Dennis or Bobby? And yes. In- <laughs> The match on Shreveport TV and Mid-South Wrestling where it was Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry against Junkyard Dog, and it was Duggan. It was Dog and Duggan. I, or was it Dog and T? I think it was Dog and Duggan. Dog and Duggan. That was the summer of 84. Uh, that was July of 84, I think. With the, with the powder in Dog's face that got caught by the fan, right? I think so, yeah. Okay. Well, because that was just it, Bobby Eaton of all people. Here was the deal. Boom, boom, boom. It was going to go on, and the referee, I think it was Ronnie West, was either going to be distracted or bumped over on the far side. And Bobby was supposed to swing at uh, Duggan, and Duggan was going to duck it and pick him up and give him an ass bump. He was going to go into the ropes and fly back, and they're going to have a double knockout. And then everybody's down, and then I jump up and try to throw powder at Junkyard Dog when he comes to me. And I've told this story before because that's what I threw the powder. There was no air conditioning in the Irish McNeil's Boys Club, and they had these big fans like six feet across blowing the air around, and I was on the opposite side of the ring from the fan when I threw the fucking powder. That giant wind caught it and blew it back at me, and Dog had to grab his face and go down and rub his face in the powder on the mat where it had landed to look like he had some on him. But point being to your question. Could have just gone right, into his trunks. Well, there you but he didn't want to he didn't want to waste that. But right before that, there is Bobby and Duggan and Duggan nails Bobby and Bobby staggered. He nails Bobby again and Bobby staggered. He nails Bobby again and Bobby stands Bobby staggering over toward me. And I look up and he's like, Corn, what's next? He had forgotten swing duck ass bump. <laughs> Bobby Eaton of all people, the greatest wrestler in the world, but it just, it was one of those days at TV and it's hot and everybody's it's second show, whatever. And he says, corny. I said, ass bump, right? Oh, and he immediately swings at Doug and Doug and ducks him, ass bump, boom. And, and then we went on with the finish. But at some point, everybody, I mean, you just, you have a brain fart or it's, just, you know, it just won't come to you. And so that's why I always, 
especially with the Midnight Express, where I was really the third member of the team. Later on, with and the Heavenly Bodies and Smoky Mountain, with some other guys I managed, they didn't want me to just sit down and have a list of things for them to do or new moves for them to try out or whatever. So I'd, you know, give them a little space. But I always knew the finish, and I had a basic concept from hearing the boys talk briefly if they were able to talk to their opponents or just talking amongst themselves of how they wanted it to go so I could stick a little reminder in whenever it might become necessary because at some point or another everybody except me goes but I went blank one time when I was a rookie and I determined I was never going to go blank again that was my biggest fear a lot of the guys have dreams where in their dream the music is playing and they don't have their boots on or they don't have their tights on. They're naked. They can't find their bag. Their music's playing. The bell's ringing. And they they got to go to the ring and it's panic, right? My wrestling dream was I'm going to the ring. I don't know the fucking finish. And I'm screaming, what's the finish? What's the finish? So I prevented myself from ever having that strife by always, no matter what, I'd remember that fucking finish. Is there a wrestler who was actually specifically bad at remembering finishes in the ring? Well, I mean, you know, there have been a lot of guys that had their moments, but spectacularly, the the Kerry Von Erich thing. You know, not only did he, I've told the story, Dundee came in one time in Oak City and asked, Kerry was up from Dallas to work with, Somebody, I think, may have been like a Geno, a, a Dallas match just on the card. And so Dundee's the booker, but he did. Carrie, you're going over. What do you want to do? Uh, sunset flip. Well, okay. And Dundee's in the locker room three or four minutes, and he starts to leave. And Carrie says, hey, Bill, what was that finish again? <laughs> Carrie would write in black Sharpie on his hand the finish. But then he'd start sweating. I've seen it a time or two. He'd start sweating. And if you ever see a video of one of his matches where he's looking at his hand and it's kind of taking him a second, (laughs) the finish would wipe (laughs) off, right? I've had guys that worked with him tell tell me that Flair said that one time, said his fucking finish wiped off. So it, it it just depends. All right. Well, with that, Jim, we will wrap things up with a song or two. I have to say we've received a lot of songs in the last couple of weeks, so we will get more next week, but a few this week. Well, Jim, let's go to this one. Sent to Courtney Drive through at gmail.com from Kieran Walsh, Waterford, Ireland. Can't keep up with Tony Kong. <laughs> Doing cocaine every day. Oh, come on. These are unproven allegations. Can't keep up with Tony Khan. And you know he puts her babrums to shame. Wonder this time what he'll say. Oh, wow. What he'll try to make us believe. Sitting next to CM Punk. And he can't help shaking out just like a leaf. What? 
Well, and there it is. It cuts Whoa. off abruptly, and I'm pretty sure that's not what Bill Withers had in mind when he wrote that beautiful song. Apologies to the estate of Bill Withers and uh, of of the estate of Tony Khan. Apologies to them, too. Just leave the, that young thing alone. There ain't no cocaine when he's gone. Well, I've said it before. I know my coke heads, and I don't think it's a coke issue, but let's go to another song here, Jim. Another one from across the pond, Jordan in Manchester, England. Here it is. Wrestling has more than one royal family. Oh, no. Adrenaline in my soul, cashing in on the last name Rhodes. Got food out of my last company. Vince McMahon is in my ear, telling me what I want to hear. Pack my bags and took my dog, I'm gone. Fuck you, Con, my father said. When I was younger, a rabbity got Now I'm finally free, and now I'm finally free from Tony's contract to WWE to WWE. Cause Vince took me back now, the best year me. I made Rollins job to me. I'll milk this cash cow till it's dry. The royal family. All right, well, that appears to be it. Cody Rhodes <laughs> may be off TV, but always in the fans' hearts. What are your thoughts on that one, Jim? That was very good. Very good. Very, you know, that song is hard to, uh, it's hard to to match lyrics to. It's very, it got a good drum beat in there, I noticed now. Very good, and we're on a good roll this week. Let's see how we can ruin that. This next one was sent to CornyDriveThrough at gmail.com. A returning champion, I am the Pelican in London, UK. Here is his song. Dave loves to sing, 
about the young bucks and the Kenny Omega. He loves a singer about the mud show goofs in AEW. All they're flipping and they're flopping, it just makes him splooge. Meltzer loves to do, Meltzer loves to sing. Give him a matcha with some high spots and a tope suicida and lots of gaga. All the gimmicks are convoluted and bizarre. Any trasher with some flasher will get seven stars. Meltzer loves to do, Meltzer loves to sing. He's just bored and seen out to a la da and shitty wrestlers befriend him. Got online to tweet a tweet a la now old Corny is trending They love to tweet uh, About Corny's credibility on Twitter He seems consumed uh, When he hears Jim's name It makes him insane But you know that Jim is right If you have half a brain Meltzer loves to tweet Meltzer loves to tweet Jim loves to sing uh, like Mussolini, but there's no more seeing punker. So he tells the truth about just how rotten everything has gotten in wrestling. Hold on, both machines going here. I'm going to clap everything. And I'm standing up, and that was musicianship, too. That was, you can't just find that track. He's had to be playing that fucking ukulele or whatever the fuck it was. That was excellent. That was certainly an interesting vocal choice, and it worked. So, I mean, he's. Sandhausen, maybe. Got talent there. It's funny how. Anything becomes funny if you just put uh after it. <laughs> <laughs> that song proved it right there. Well, with that, we can't top uh, that. On such a happy note, the drive-thru is closed. Yeah. You know, if I had hit the right note at the end, this would have been a perfect ending. But of course, you'll hear more next week here on the drive-thru. And this weekend on the Jim Cornette Experience, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, get access to the archive of the drive-thru and experience. Going back to 2013, that's nine years ago. Wow. Holy mackerel. Patreon.com slash Cornette. $5 a month gets you access to the archive. Patreon.com slash Cornette. Subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Go there. Clips of the episodes, full episodes, omnibus collections. Of course, just go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. The very first thing that'll pop up will be the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. You can follow Jim on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Don't forget about Cornette's collectibles at jimcornette.com. Limited edition figures, Jim. Well, they're not limited editions, they're just limited in number. Because the original figure will be back on sale for a few minutes on Saturday, July 16th, as we get rid of the last 80-some figures with the money going to the WHS Crusade for Children. That's Saturday, July 16th at noon at jimcornette.com. 
Uh, 20-something bloody variants on sale to the folks in Australia and New Zealand who got screwed. That's also on the 16th. Time to be announced on the experience this coming week. And otherwise, jimcornett.com for all your needs. The Feather Bottoms are excited about fucking your package. At jimcornett.com and across the United States, I assume. But of course, the drive-thru is brought to you by the the law office. the Feather Bottoms ultra-careful handling system. They will fuck your package. And when they fuck it up really bad, you know who to call. Stephen Pinu, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. You'll be hearing him on the show very, very soon. But until this weekend on The Experience, and next week right back here on my show, The drive Through for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive Through. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive through Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them door corner bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive-through. Corny's drive-through. Corny's drive-through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his millions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games, just like Kenny Omega. To the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven Pedro, everybody. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.